Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. How about secrets? Secrets are adult content when you finally unburden yourself of the secrets that you've been holding inside, oh, only your whole life. If that kind of content appeals to you, please continue to listen. If it does not, check out one of the other fine podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're heading back to the Shrieking Shack, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. Snape was not looking at Voldemort now. His dark eyes were still fixed upon the coiling serpent in its protective sphere. I saw the third wand, Severus. The Elder Wand. The Wand of Destiny. The Death Stick. I took it from its previous master. I took it from the grave of Albus Dumbledore. And now Snape looked at Voldemort, and Snape's face was like a death mask. It was marble white and so still that when he spoke... It was a shock to see that anyone lived behind the blank eyes. My lord, let me go to the boy. Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network and still somehow going in 2019. Yes. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished encasing Milton in a starry sphere. Gotta keep him safe. That'll be one of the signs (laughs) that we're nearing the end game. It's Ringer Senior Creative, your headmaster. Oh! Jason Concepcion. Mal, Milt, kill! but protect binge mode Harry Potter where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you're prepared to come to me within the hour, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points and stars for binge mode. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to get to know Toonie. Also, head over to ringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Note, merch is not immune to snake bites. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how answering the call shapes chapters 29 through 31 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 32 and 33. Deep! Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge is always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep, 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 deep. On details from all seven books and ten films, including the new Fantastic Beasts movie and the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series into account from the moment Hermione hands us a flask, but we will not be taking the restricted section into account today because, folks, it's time for the Prince's Tale. That's right. This is a really long episode. No restricted section today. We're sorry. It'll be back next time. So gather the silver strands. Look into our eyes. Oh, man. Because it's time to head into Snape's memories. Mal, I thought all these years that we were protecting binge mode for her, for Lily. So let's honor her one more time by offering up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallow's chapters 32 to 33 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot the Hogwarts Express choo-choo. With Fred dead and the battle raging, Harry has never felt more hopeless. But he, Hermione, and Ron managed to make their way to the Shrieking Shack, where Voldemort has summoned Snape to Voldy thinks kill his trusty acolyte and master, the Elder Wand. Harry observes in horror as Nagini kills Snape and then takes a vial full of pensive memories that Snape desperately exudes for Harry before dying. 
Phoenix Song. Yes. For Severus Snape, whose true sacrifice is about to become clear at last. As the battle pauses for an hour, Harry learns that Lupin and Tonks have perished. Phoenix song and a wolf cry for our dear friends tragically killed just as their son Teddy was born. As the others mourn Lupin, Tonks, Fred, and more, Harry takes Snape's memories up to the pensive where he watches the story of Severus Snape and Lily Evans unfold. He learns Snape's true loyalty and the fact that he himself is an unintended horcrux and therefore must die at the Dark Lord's hand if Voldemort is to be truly defeated. Shocking twist! Wild stuff! (laughs) Mal, Isaac must not know. Not until the last moment. Not until it is necessary. Otherwise, how could he have the strength to edit a podcast this long? And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts to the defining theme of chapters 32-33 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is understanding. Chapter 32, The Elder Wand. Quote, The world had ended. So why had the battle not ceased? The castle fallen silent in horror, and every combatant laid down their arms. Harry's mind was in free fall, spinning out of control, unable to grasp the impossibility because Fred Weasley could not be dead. Harry Potter has known death since he first knew life. His parents were taken from him when he was but a baby boy, so young that he couldn't remember the truth of their demise until a stranger with a tangled beard knocked down a door 10 years later and told him. Harry watched the light leave Cedric's eyes in the graveyard. He saw Sirius, the closest thing he'd known to family since he re-entered the wizarding world, fall beyond the veil. He stood helpless and frozen as the killing curse blasted Dumbledore from atop the lightning-struck tower. He lost Hedwig, his beloved owl and friend. He lost Moody, who seemed eternal. He held Dobby as his selfless companion died in his arms. But death isn't an illness against which one can build up immunity. It's not a math problem that one can work to solve. No two deaths are the same, and they never get any easier to shoulder. Grief is unique and eternal. The weight of it changes, maybe, the shape of it, the feel of it, but never the presence of it. Not for someone like Harry, whose capacity for love shields him like a Patronus, but also prevents him from ever growing numb to the crippling pain the loss brings. And so it feels to Harry that Fred's last breath must surely be his own as well. It feels impossible that life could go on for Harry or anyone else in the castle or indeed anyone else in the world if it had stopped going for Fred, who brought laughter and joy and cheer to so many. Each joke or surprising pearl of wisdom, a glowing lantern in the pressing dark. But war is unthinking and unfeeling. War cares not for those who suffer from its touch. War is as relentless as the pull of the tide and the beat of the sun and the howl of the wind. It doesn't stop for anyone, even Fred, even Harry, who's called back to the unceasing hell of his present reality when a body falls past the missing castle wall and curses begin to fly through the cloudy air. Harry shouts for everyone to get down, and he and Ron both pull Hermione protectively to the floor, but Percy does not move, will not move. Recall what Molly said in Order of the Phoenix after Harry discovered her staring in horror as the Grimald place Bogart transformed into dead loved one after dead loved one, giving form to her greatest fear. I'm just so worried, Molly said to Harry, Lupin, Sirius, and Moody, two of whom are dead by this point in Hallows and another of whom is about to be. One more gutting reminder of the toll this war has already wrought. Half the family's in the Order. It'll be a miracle if we all come through this and Percy's not talking to us. What if something dreadful happens and we had never made up? Something dreadful has happened, and one of the few mercies amid the despair here 
is that Molly's fear and tragedy befalling the family before Percy returned to the fold did not come to pass. That Percy got to tell Fred he was sorry and feel Fred's forgiveness and see the shine of his smile one more time. And yet for Percy redeeming himself and reconnecting with his family mere moments before Fred's death isn't purely a blessing. It's torturous. The shattering unreality of losing something so precious, something he just regained, something he squandered. The image of him refusing to leave Fred's side is one of the story's most searing snapshots of grief. From the book, Percy lay across Fred's body, shielding it from further harm. Before Percy's falling out with the family, he and the twins were boundless sources of torment for each other. But one of the true gifts of friendship and family is bridging the divide of our differences to care for and support one another. And here, Percy wants to give Fred the last thing he can, the protection of his flesh, the shield of his love. He simply cannot bear the idea of leaving Fred in the wreckage, where more spells and stone and who knows what other horrors could befall him. Harry looks at Ron and sees the tears through the dirt on Ron's face as he tries to pull Percy to safety. Quote, but Percy would not budge. He's frozen in time just like that last laugh forever engraved on Fred's face. And there's something so agonizing about that final image of Fred, preserved the way we'd want to remember him, smiling, joking, but also reminding us that he was ripped away in a moment that so embodied all that he gave. Fred's jovial spirit made a real difference in the world. The joke shop that he and George built uplifted people every day. A beacon of cheers, Diagon Alley fell into disrepair around it. The way that he and George left Hogwarts, disrupting Umbridge's reign of terror, cemented their legacy as legends across time. The twins brought more than witticisms and quips. They brought consistent support, displaying, if not always an unimpeachable moral compass, at least an uncommon instinct for sharing their insights and fortunes with those in need. Giving Harry the Marauder's map was a way of paying forward the mischief-making, sure— But it was also a testament to their generosity and empathy, their desire in many forms to brighten someone else's life. How can we ever fill that void? How can George, who lost not only his brother and his best friend, but his twin, a part of him, inseparable and inextricable? How can Arthur? How can Molly? Who also said to Harry the night that her boggart tormented her in Grimald Place, quote, I see them dead all the time. All the time. I dream about it. Molly lost her brothers in the first war. She knew that her family, so deeply involved in the current war effort, could not possibly escape this fight unscathed. The Weasleys were bound to shed blood in this battle, just as Ron worried all those nights in the woods as the locket called forth and preyed upon his fears, just as Harry always dreaded as the prospect of someone else close to him dying for him ate away at him. After seeing Molly's boggart in order, Harry reflected, alone that evening, on Molly's efforts to excuse her breakdown by saying that she was being silly. He doesn't agree. Quote, He could still see his parents beaming up at him from the tattered old photograph, unaware that their lives, like so many of those around them, were drawing to a close. That idea has always been a haunting one. Because how can you move forward if you know that the end is drawing near? But how can you appreciate your final moments if you don't know that you're experiencing them? In The Prince's Tale, we'll see Dumbledore tell Snape that Harry must not know the truth about the piece of Voldemort within him until the final moment. Quote, otherwise, how could he have the strength to do what must be done? But how can any of us have the strength to do anything if the ones we love are continuously torn away from us? Fred was of age, no longer a boy, no longer a student, but still a son, a brother, a friend. As Bill and Floor prepared to marry earlier in Hallows, he said, quote, when I get married, I won't be bothering with any of this nonsense. He spoke about the future as a guarantee. Even after all that they'd lost, he remained undeterred by the horror around them, always believing that good would prevail and life would go on. Life ended for Fred, but his spirit endures. His impact is everlasting as the final smile on his face. Harry tells Percy that there's nothing else he can do, and just then Hermione screams. A massive spider, one of Aragog's brood, has made its way through the breach in the wall. They have to move. 
He reaches down to pick up Fred, not wanting to leave his body there either. And Percy, realizing what Harry is trying to do, helps move Fred out of the path of the impending stampede of bodies and spells and creatures. They lay him to rest in a recess in the wall where a suit of armor had previously nestled. From the book, he could not bear to look at Fred a second longer than he had to. Once Harry is sure that Fred's body is safe, he runs off toward Ron and Hermione, who's trying to stop Ron from running after Percy and the Death Eaters. I want to help, Ron is saying. I want to kill Death Eaters. Ron has seen death. He's heard the names pour out of the wireless, seen them dotted across the Daily Prophet, felt the impact they've had on Harry's life, and now he's experiencing the crippling blow directly and feeling the desperation to respond, to try to turn his mourning into action. Hermione begs Ron to stay, both because she wants to keep him close, keep him safe, and because, as she reminds him here, they have to go find the stake. They need to try to end this for good. But Harry understands the base instincts driving Ron. He feels them too. Hermione is also distraught, of course. She has to wipe away tears as she speaks. But she pushes through the sadness and implores them to remember that they're the only ones who can stop this. The fighting and the death will continue unless they win. They'll fight on their way to the snake, she tells them, and then instructs Harry to use the portal between him and Voldemort to find out where the Dark Lord is, because Nagini will be with him. Quote, why was it so easy? Harry, who has in the past struggled to such dire consequences to master his connection with Voldemort, slips instantly here into Voldemort's mind, the sound of the battle receding as he finds himself standing in a familiar room with boarded-up windows and peeling walls. Quote, he was rolling his wand between his fingers, watching it, his thoughts on the room in the castle, the secret room only he had ever found, the room like the chamber, that you had to be clever and cunning and inquisitive to discover. It is no accident that this glimpse of Voldemort contemplating the Elder Wand on the brink of making his fateful and misguided attempt to win its allegiance is paired with his woefully ignorant assessment of his own brilliance in discovering the room of hidden things. J.K. Rowling is masterfully, subtly priming us for Voldemort's next miscalculation. And of course, Voldemort isn't just overestimating his own achievements. He's once again underestimating Harry. Dismissing him anew as a pawn who's benefited from tutelage and lucky breaks rather than his own skill and heart. After this many showdowns, after this many defeats at Harry's hands, after learning that Harry had discovered his horcruxes and destroyed so many of them, Voldemort still thinks himself invincible, still considers his path forward a matter of tweaking his own choices rather than accounting for someone else's. And he's about to make yet another mistake. Harry and Voldemort hear a ragged voice say, My lord! It's Lucius, still battered from the punishment he incurred after losing Harry at Malfoy Manor. He's asking about his son. If your son is dead, Lucius, Voldemort replies, it's not my fault. He did not come and join me like the rest of the Slytherins. Perhaps he's decided to befriend Potter? Lucius tells him there's no chance of that, and he's right. But one of Voldemort's many downfalls is that he's an ingrate. One of the byproducts of not truly having any friends, as Dumbledore told Harry Voldemort did not, is that Voldemort doesn't engender the deepest kind of loyalty and love. He rules through fear and the promise of power still to this day, offering the same things that proximity to him promised his schoolmates, the precursors to the Death Eaters. The loyalty that Harry inspires is so strong because it stems from sincere mutual respect and affection. Voldemort does not benefit from this, in part because he doesn't want it or value it. And with the Malfoys, we'll see how costly that lack of human connection and empathy will prove. His lack of compassion will drive Narcissa to lie about Harry's death, knowing that her leader will not bring her back to her son, but that her own betrayal might. Voldemort tells Lucius, he doesn't need to go find Harry. Quote, before the night is out, he says, Potter will have come to find me. He does not know, of course, the revelations in Snape's memories that will lead Harry to walk into the forest to sacrifice himself. But he understands something about Harry, just as Harry understands so much about him. He knows that Harry, who's hunting Horcruxes, will need to try to find the guinea. And he knows as well that Harry cares about people and will not want anyone else to die for him. Knows that he can prey upon Harry's emotions and affections to try to leverage them against him 
as he'll soon do in an upcoming transmission. But of course, one of Voldemort's many blind spots is that he doesn't understand the strength of that part of Harry's Mm -hmm. character. He thinks that Harry's heart is his weakness, never realizing that it's Harry's defining gift and strength. In King's Cross, Dumbledore will say to Harry, if he could only have understood the precise and terrible power of that sacrifice, he would not perhaps have dared to touch your blood. But then, if he had been able to understand, he could not be Lord Voldemort and might never have murdered at all. Dumbledore is speaking there of Lily's sacrifice. But the words also apply to Voldemort's failure to truly appreciate the power behind the sacrifice that Harry will make, behind all the choices that Harry makes. Knowing that Harry will seek him out, but not knowing that doing so will cast Harry's protection over everyone else in the castle that Harry turned himself over to save, just as Lily's sacrifice protected Harry, is far worse than Voldemort never considering that Harry would come in the first place. Once again, it's hubris, his arrogance shrouding him from considering that Harry's desire to protect others would result in him managing to do exactly that. And his false perceptions don't end there. They extend, as we'll see in this final showdown with Harry, to Wandlore. From the book, Voldemort dropped his gaze once more to the wand in his fingers. It troubled him. He tells Lucius to go get Snape. And when Lucius leaves, Voldemort speaks again, this time to his snake. It is the only way, Nagini, he says, revealing again his damning ignorance. He reveals something else here as well. Nagini's location in a protective sphere that Voldemort designed to keep what he thinks is his final horcrux safe. Harry pulls himself back into his own mind and tells Ron and Hermione that Voldemort and the encased Nagini are in the Shrieking Shack. Hermione's outraged that Voldemort is laying up in Hogsmeade, not even fighting. But Harry tells her that Voldemort doesn't think he needs to hunt for Harry, believing that Harry will need to go to him in order to try to slay the snake. It's ironic. At the same moment that Voldemort is trying to convince himself that Harry is a witless beneficiary of someone else's insights, he also believes that Harry will have uncovered Nagini's standing as a horcrux. He cannot accept, internalize, and properly honor what he's already sort of admitting, that Harry understands what Voldemort has done and that such understanding might position him for continued success. Each member of the trio offers to go, wanting to keep the other safe, and it's heartwarming to be sure, but in their desire to protect each other, they're also temporarily forgetting that their strength comes from each other, that the only way forward here, at least for now, is together as one. Hermione amid the chaos tells Harry to put the cloak on. Never mind us, she says. But he puts it, of course over all three of them, once more bringing his friends with him under the cloak's protection. They're about as far removed as they could be from exploratory midnight jaunts through the corridors, but in some ways, they're still frozen in time, forever bound by their mutual desire to help each other thrive. They run down one flight where they find the battle in full swing, their one-time classmates dueling Death Eaters in single combat. Thanks to some quick work from Dino Parvati, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are able to escape into the entrance hall. The entrance hall is full of duelers. More of Aragog's children enter the hall and screams fill the air with Death Eaters and Hogwartians alike running for cover. Hagrid charges in, pink umbrella in hand, begging the masses not to hurt the spiders. (laughs) So on brand. Not right now! (laughs) From the book, Harry forgot everything else. He sprinted out from under the cloak. Before he can get close enough to help, he sees Hagrid vanish among the mass of hairy legs and pincers. Harry screams Hagrid's name and charges out into the grounds uncovered, exposed. But not thinking of anything other than Hagrid, who he could not bear to lose. A brother, a father, a teacher, a friend. One of the most precious links to the wizarding world. Recall in Half-Blood Prince Harry's recurring thought after losing Dumbledore as he pursued Snape into the grounds and saw Hagrid's cabin and Hagrid himself come into view, illuminated by spells. Not Hagrid, not Hagrid too. There's something unbearable about the the mere prospect of losing the half-giant. But before Harry can follow further, a full giant enters his path, followed by Grop, who's looking for his half-brother. Hagger! Run! Harry screams, grabbing Hermione's hand and charging toward the forest to try to save Hagrid. Run right behind them. But before they get even halfway toward their mark, toward the forest, quote, the air around them had frozen. Harry's breath caught and solidified in his chest. 
Dementors filling the night air with their blackness and their chill, dampening the sound of the battle as they suck everything but hopelessness from the air. Hermione begs Harry to cast his Patronus, but he cannot do it. Quote, a dull hopelessness was spreading through him. How many more lay dead that he did not yet know about? He felt as though his soul had already half left his body. <sighs> Harry's ability to cast a full corporeal Patronus <laughs> has been one of his defining abilities as a wizard making him such a prodigy that it earned him extra credit during his owl exam and earned him as well the iconic Patronus Potter moniker from Lucius Malfoy. And ever since Harry first learned to conjure a full, his love has led him. He's thought of the moment when he learned he was a wizard and had a whole world where he belonged waiting for him. He's thought of the idea of going to live with Sirius, his newly discovered godfather and his father's best friend. And he's thought, of course, time and again, of Ron and Hermione and the force of their friendship. But now in this moment, the same love that's forged Harry's stag is preventing him from conjuring it at all. The same love that has literally blasted away the cold and the dark with light and warmth is wrapping itself like a vice around Harry's heart, enveloping him not in hope, but in his own terror. Harry's worst fear is playing out in real time around him. The carnage unavoidable, the people he loves and wants to protect getting hurt or even killed to protect him instead. As Harry sat at Dumbledore's funeral, he thought to himself, quote, and Harry saw very clearly as he sat there under the hot sun how people who cared about him had stood in front of him one by one, his mother, his father, his godfather, and finally Dumbledore, all determined to protect him. But now that was over. He could not let anybody else stand between him and Voldemort. That introspection stands as one of the series' most devastating moments when loss drives Harry, a hero defined by his bonds to other people and his choice to live for love rather than hate, to truly believe that he has to go it alone. And it's just as beautiful and powerful when Ron and Hermione pull him out of that pit by reminding him what an asset their unity is. But Harry is human. His fear never leaves him. And his deepest terror is manifesting before his eyes in this battle. The bulk of the people that Harry knows in the wizarding world are there to fight, there for him. He knows rationally that they're fighting for themselves as well, for a way of life, for freedom, for goodness, for an end to the terror that has come to rule their lives. But rationality can't quiet fear. That's not how fear works. And right now, the devastating possibility that more people will die for Harry is preying upon his fear with the precision and ferocity of the locket. Quote, a hundred dementors were advancing, colliding toward them, sucking their way closer to Harry's despair, which was like the promise of a feast. Harry sees Ron's terrier and Hermione's otter emerge and fade just as quickly. But then Harry sees other silver shapes emerge, a hare, a boar, a fox. Luna, Ernie, and Seamus, three people who learned how to cast Patronuses from Harry and the DA, have arrived to cast Patronuses and save him. That's right, said Luna encouragingly, as if they were back in the room of requirement and this was simply spell practice. That's right, Harry, come on, think of something happy. Something happy, he said, his voice cracked. We're all still here, she whispered, we're all still fighting. This is true magic, the yes. magic of friendship. The magic of relationships that alter something fundamental about people's lives. The magic of realizing that you've made such an impact on someone else that they now get to show you the strength you help them uncover within themselves. It's a tremendous testament to believing in each other and working, not just to tear down something together, but to build something stronger. Luna and company aren't just issuing their Patronuses. They're helping Harry rediscover his hope and his faith. Quote, with the greatest effort it had ever cost him, the stag burst from the end of Harry's wand. The Dementors fade away and the sounds of battle return, but a giant emerges from the forest. Harry, Ron, and Hermione make their way to the Whomping Willow, and Harry wills himself to focus on moving forward, on staying alive. They reach the Whomping Willow and freeze the branches. More on that in the seven. They move forward into the tunnel. 
Harry inching forward with quiet care, hears muffled voices behind a crate that's been jammed up against the opening from the tunnel. He wiggles up against the mouth of it, peering through a tiny gap in the crate, and he sees Nagini in midair, in her case. And he sees as well Voldemort's hand twirling the Elder Wand. And then he hears Snape speak. Quote, Harry's heart lurched. He hears Snape tell Voldemort that the resistance is crumbling, and Voldemort replies that it will continue to do so, with or without Snape. Quote, skilled wizard though you are, Severus, I do not think you will make much difference now. With the full clarity of what's to come, we can see right away that Snape is trying to extract himself from this situation to go find Harry, to go do what Dumbledore bid. In The Prince's Tale, we'll see Dumbledore tell Snape, quote, if there comes a time when Lord Voldemort stops sending that snake forth to do his bidding, but keeps it safe beside him under magical protection, then I think it will be safe to tell Harry. Snape is seeing exactly that play out now, Nagini spinning in her crystal case beside him. And he's trying, without blowing his cover in the process, to put the understanding that Dumbledore shared with him and him alone into critical action, to share the knowledge that part of Voldemort's soul resides within Harry before there's no one left to do so. Let me find the boy, Snape says to Voldemort here. Let me bring you Potter. I know I can find him, my lord, please. And these words are like a knife to the heart, a microcosm of Snape's delicate double act, playing like a plea to serve Voldemort's agenda while truly revealing Snape's desire to protect Harry and honor his pledge. Just like the words I solemnly swear that I am up to no good unlock the secrets of the Marauder's map, our understanding of Snape's true purpose, gleaned in the pages to come in the Prince's Tale, unlock the secrets behind the words that he speaks here. And yet we, like Snape, are helpless to do anything but play witness to Voldemort's whims. As Harry sits wondering whether any spells he knows might break through Nagini's casing, successfully enough to risk giving away his position, Voldemort stands and moves into Harry's view. I have a problem, Severus, the Dark Lord says. He raises the Elder Wand and voices the question that's been gnawing at him in a way that his own insecurities never have. Why doesn't it work for me, Severus? It is, we now know, a death sentence in question form. Snape asks what Voldemort means, and we can sense from the uncharacteristically fractured nature of his speech that his unease is sincere. My, my lord, I do not understand. You have performed extraordinary magic with that wand. Voldemort's reply is an incredible flex and a pitch-perfect insight into his character. No, I have performed my usual magic. I am extraordinary. But this wand, no. It has not revealed the wonders it has promised. He is a brilliant, gifted wizard, equaled in skill and intellect by precious few. He can tell something is not right, that the wand of legend is not acting in legendary fashion. But he's blind to the true reason why. From the book, Snape did not speak. Harry could not see his face. He wondered whether Snape sensed danger, was trying to find the right words to reassure his master. Voldemort asks if Snape knows why he called him to the shack. From the book, and for a moment, Harry saw Snape's profile. His eyes were fixed upon the coiling snake in its enchanted cage. He's transfixed by Dumbledore's words, playing out in real time before his eyes and by the weight of knowing that he alone understands what this means. What moment has arrived at last? Snape tells Voldemort he does not know why he was summoned and begs him once again to let him go find Harry. The fear that he might fail to honor Dumbledore's wish to bring about Harry's enlightenment is digging its claws deeper into him. Quote, but it is of you that I wish to speak, Severus, not Harry Potter. Whether or not you believed in Snape, when you first read this, these words chilled the blood. We can feel with each frantic beat of the heart that we're building towards some doom, still masked in shadow but creeping further into the light with every word. He tells Snape how valuable he's been to him, and the statement hangs in the air like an advanced eulogy. Snape acknowledges the comment only as a way to transition into yet another plea 
to allow him to go find the boy. Quote, let me bring him to you. I know I can. And the subtext we can see now is really, I know I must try. But Voldemort's patience is thin. He shrieks no and his eyes flash red. My concern at the moment, Severus, he says, is what will happen when I finally meet the boy? And Snape says, surely there can be no question. Quote, but there is a question, Severus. There is. Harry at this point has to bite down on his own fist to stop himself from crying out from the pain that's building in his head. And when he closes his eyes here, he slips into Voldemort's mind, seeing Snape now through Voldemort's eyes, seeing that he's not looking at Voldemort as he speaks, but is still fixed upon the guinea, upon Dumbledore's warning, upon the ticking clock that only he can see and understand. Voldemort tells Snape that his yu wand failed him against Harry, as did the borrowed one that he took from Lucius on Ollivander's advice. And so he says he sought a third wand, the wand of legend that he robbed from Dumbledore's own grave. Quote, and now Snape looked at Voldemort, and Snape's face was like a death mask. It was marble, white and so still that when he spoke, it was a shock to see that anyone lived behind the blank eyes. This part is chilling. My lord, he says, let me go to the boy. And this is a haunting moment. The death mask both foreshadowing his impending doom and speaking to the mask that he wore for so much of his life, obscuring his true intentions from all but himself, Dumbledore, and the version of Lily that he kept in his heart. The words, let me go to the boy, are a chilling final plea to let him, though he must mask the true intention behind his words, try to honor his pledge to Dumbledore, to let him try to protect Harry, this time by arming him with information, with the truth. There's something about Snape's tendency throughout this exchange to refer to Harry as the boy that sums up so much about how he views his role as Harry's protector. Mm -hmm. As we've watched Harry grow into adulthood, shouldering an increasingly heavy burden, he has remained, for Snape, Lily's son. The baby boy who was deprived of feeling Lily's love every day in part because of a mistake Snape made. The boy who has needed Snape without knowing it and needs him still. He sees Harry now and always through Lily's eyes, and he wants maybe more than he's ever wanted anything other than to try to keep Lily alive and to be with her, to find his way back to that boy now, to give him the gift after a lifetime of mystery, of true understanding. Voldemort speaks again, telling Snape that he's thought over why the Elder One does not work for him as it should. And I think I have the answer. Perhaps you already know it. You're a clever man after all, Severus. Well, if Snape hadn't figured it out before this, he certainly has upon hearing these words. The Elder One cannot serve me properly, Severus, because I am not its true master. The Elder One belongs to the wizard who killed its last owner. You killed Albus Dumbledore while you live, Severus. The Elder One cannot be truly mine. It's incredible to parse these words and see how wrong, how truly and critically wrong Voldemort is. The first sentence, the first observation is right. The wand, Voldemort can tell, does not recognize him as its true master, but... That's where his understanding ends, and his misconceptions will cost him not only Snape's life, but ultimately Voldemort's own life and war effort as well. The Elder Wand does not belong to the wizard who killed Dumbledore. Snape is not its master. Draco, as we'll learn in the book's closing chapters, became the wand's master when he disarmed Dumbledore atop the tower, and the Death Stick shifted its allegiance to Harry when he bested Draco in Malfoy Manor. What's more, Snape did not kill Dumbledore. Technically, sure, he cast the killing curse, but he did so because Dumbledore wanted him to, because it was a mercy, because it was part of a grandmaster plan. Voldemort is acting here in the manner that he considers decisive, that he believes will prime him for total victory. But in reality, he's positioning himself to be undone, again, by his own limitations, by his failure to understand the nuances at play in Wandlore and in human relations. 
And of course, by the stark, defining contrast between how he and Harry treat their supporters. Snape is not actually Voldemort's supporter. It's true. But Voldemort has no idea about that. And yet he's willing to discard him. The man he thinks killed Dumbledore, the man whose ruse has made him appear to all observers as Voldemort's most loyal servant for gain, for an edge in battle. In two chapters, Harry will sacrifice his own life to save others. Here, Voldemort takes the life of lieutenant with nothing more than empty words about what it's costing him. He pays no actual toll at all because he does not care, does not feel, does not love. From the book, it cannot be any other way, Voldemort says. I must master the wand, Severus, master the wand, and I master Potter at last. He slashes the air with the Elder Wand. From the book, it did nothing to Snape, who for a split second seemed to think he had been reprieved. The horrifying truth rolls toward him, but a second later. Nagini's case cycles through the air, enveloping Snape's head and neck and shoulders in its see-through shell. As Snape yells, Voldemort does too, and parcel tongue, kill. From the book, there was a terrible scream, and Harry watches through Voldemort's eyes as Nagini's fangs pierce Snape's neck. Terrible way to die, trapped in his own double act, encased in his own lie. As far as he knows, dying with the secret that he must tell Harry encased in his head, he can't get to that final place. He tries to push Nagini off, but he can't, and he sinks to the floor as the life slowly leaves him. I regret it, said Voldemort coldly. He turned away. There was no sadness in him, no remorse. In their final showdown, Harry will tell Riddle to try for some remorse, to try for some humanity. But he isn't able, of course, does not possess the capacity. Unlike Snape, who, as we're about to see, lived a life defined by those very things. Voldemort points his wand at Nagini's casing and draws her forward with him as he leaves the room and the dying man, without looking back. A display of such cold callousness. Harry slips back into his own mind and then, despite Hermione's protestations, into the room. Quote, he did not know why he was doing it, why he was approaching the dying man. He did not know what he felt as he saw Snape's white face and the fingers trying to staunch the bloody wound at his neck. Harry took off the invisibility cloak and looked down upon the man he hated, whose widening black eyes found Harry as he tried to speak. Man, I will never forget reading this for the first time. It is fascinating to consider what's going through Harry's mind here, what Mm -hmm. is propelling him forward, what he's wrestling with. So many times before, he's wished Snape ill, wished him harm, wished to be the one to bring it to him, or at least that's what he said. But that's not really in Harry's heart, not when it comes down to it. And so even though his hatred rises as he looks down at Snape, he recognizes as well that he's not sure what else he's feeling, that there's a complexity at play here that he can't yet fully appreciate. Harry and Snape have been inextricably linked in ways that Harry does not yet fully realize. Their fate's so entwined that there could be no more fitting thing than for Harry to be present here at the end, there to receive the understanding and death that Snape could never give him in life. Snape grabs Harry's robes as Harry leans over, and he pulls him close, exerting every ounce of remaining energy he possesses to say, take it, take it. And Harry sees then that there's more than blood pouring out of Snape. There are memories too, silvery blue, emitted not in the controlled, deliberate manner that we've seen before when Snape and Dumbledore have deposited thoughts in the pensive, but gushing out of him from his mouth and his ears and his eyes the manifestation of Snape's desperation to not fail Dumbledore or Harry at the end after working and living so long to honor his pledge. Snape's life was defined by secrets, by the clarity that he carried within beneath that death mask, behind those black eyes under those biting words. And here at the end, the boy that Snape saved so often is there to save him by receiving those secrets as they surface at last, by ensuring that Snape can fulfill his final task, his final act of protection, 
the greatest reveal of all. Hermione conjures a flask and gives it to Harry, who, with shaking hands, lifts Snape's memories into it with his wand, filling the flask right to the brim. And Harry feels Snape's grip loosen on his robes as the life continues to drain out of him. As Snape moves closer to death, here, in the shrieking shack of all places, the sight of Snape's near-death experience as a boy, the sight of the life debt between him and James Potter that Snape so deeply resented, the sight of his failed attempt as an adult to corner Lupin and Sirius and bring them what he perceived to be justice. Snape whispers to Harry his final words. Look at me. And ever since Harry first looked at Snape at the welcome feast in Sorcerer's Stone, he's wondered what emotion and intention lay behind that blank stare. There's so much that he's never known, so much that he's never been able to appreciate or understand, but that is about to change. As Snape looks at him again, passing as much truth and clarity as he can with one final glance, gazing hungrily, longingly into Harry's eyes, Lily's eyes, as we've heard from so many people over the course of this story, the green orbs a source of peace and love at the end, a portal to the past, a final glimpse, a final reminder of the love and the loss that fueled Snape's life. Quote, the green eyes found the black, but after a second, something in the depths of the dark pair seemed to vanish, leaving them fixed blank and empty. The hand holding Harry thudded to the floor, and Snape moved no more. Chapter 33, The Prince's Tale. An all-time chapter. We say this a lot, but it's really an all-time chapter. This is a top three chapter. Yeah, it's incredible. Simultaneously heart-pounding shock after shock after shock, and a narrative literary achievement that stitches together perfectly, where every beat fits expertly when you look back retrospectively at everything that came before it. Show don't tell is one of the tenets of good storytelling. Yet telling, as this seminal chapter shows, has its place too. With the telling of the prince's tale, J.K. Rowling is tapping into the universal human desire to be understood. The results are electrifying and cathartic. It's the kind of storytelling moment which, as it's first happening, you on some level lament it because you know you'll never experience it in that way again after having read it the first time. The Prince's Tale is about long-awaited understanding, and it is a gift from Snape to Harry and from J.K. Rowling to her readers. With his dying breath, Severus Snape bequeathed Harry his memories, his truth, his love, his shame, and answers, answers to both questions Harry has been seeking, and to those he didn't even know to ask. The sudden clarity, like the opening of one's eyes, forever reframes Harry's understanding of a man who he thought was convinced he knew. Before The Prince's Tale, Harry believed that Snape was the lowest of the low, a vile betrayer, the murderer of Albus Dumbledore. And yet, some years after emerging from Snape's memories, Harry will name his second son Albus Severus, linking the names of his two great teachers and protectors in his own flesh and blood. And for readers, J.K. lays bare the motivations that Snape kept locked behind his impenetrable, sneering mask of contemptuous detachment, ending years of roiling speculation with a chapter that at once cements the entire saga and stands on its own as a rare literary achievement. I'm already, like, quivering. <laughs> Back in the Shrieking Shack, Harry sits frozen, staring down at Snape, until with a thrill of terror, he hears Voldemort's voice cut through the air again. You have fought valiantly, Voldemort says, and he sounds so close to Harry that Harry thinks he could be right back in the room. Lord Voldemort knows how to value bravery, yet you have sustained heavy losses. If you continue to resist me, you will all die one by one. I do not wish this to happen. Every drop of magical blood spilled is a loss and a waste. This... From the man we just overheard saying that he ordered his Death Eaters to kill Harry's friends, and the more the better. 
He boasts so insincerely of his merciful nature, he who just butchered a man that he really thinks is a loyal servant. He continues with the show, with the farce, with the puppeteering act, ordering his army to retreat, to give the opposition time, to regroup, to heal, to think. He tells them that they have one hour to treat their injured and gather their dead, though he uses the words dispose of, Mm -hmm. revealing again his warped view of death as ugly and foul, something to avoid, something to hide from. And then he moves down his set list to the main event. I speak now, he says, Harry Potter, directly to you. You have permitted your friends to die for you rather than face me yourself. And this is, of course, a lie. Mm -hmm. Voldemort was not on the field of battle. He sent his followers to attack as he lay in wait, harping on his wand without sparing a thought for the loss of life spreading around him or the damage incurred by the castle that he claims to value so, or the division spreading cripplingly further through the world that he wants to rule. And Harry, far from asking others to die for him, tried to do everything he could to prevent exactly that, dreading with every breath and step and wand wave that others would suffer because of choices he made. But the truth is one of the very few weapons that Voldemort does not seek to deploy. He cares not for honesty or compassion. He cares only for his own pursuit of superiority and victory and immortality. Voldemort continues, I shall wait one hour in the forbidden forest. If at the end of that hour you have not come to me, have not given yourself up, then battle recommences. This time I shall enter the fray myself, Harry Potter, and I shall find you. And I shall punish every last man, woman, and child who has tried to conceal you from me. One hour. Ron and Hermione, standing by Harry as he hears this, are insistent. Harry, don't. Don't. They set out to return to the castle the way they came, Harry's mind worrying over Voldemort's demand, over the accusation of letting others die for him, to find a scene of true horror. Bundles on the lawn, shoes without feet to go in them, an unnatural quiet in the castle itself, blood staining its floor. You have sustained heavy losses, Voldemort says. And like all tyrants, Voldemort uses vague, passive constructions in his grammar to soften the horror of his actions and obscure responsibility. In the language of oppression, it is never clear who is doing what to whom. I have murdered your friends and family becomes every drop of magical blood is a loss and a waste, and you have sustained heavy losses. Who has caused the losses? Who is spilling the blood? Our friends march through the eerie still. Splintered wood and spilled emeralds dotting the blood toward the great hall where they find the cost of the battle and all its inescapable tragedy, the dead in a row in the middle of the floor. From the book, Harry could not see Fred's body because his family surrounded him. George was kneeling at his head. Mrs. Weasley was lying across Fred's chest, her body shaking. Mr. Weasley stroking her hair while tears cascaded down his cheeks. Ron and Hermione walk forward into the hall to mourn with the Weasleys. Harry watches from the doorway as Hermione hugs Ginny and Ron grips his brother in his arms. As the assembled embrace, they shift, and through a new gap in the throng, Harry sees two more bodies next to Fred. From the book, Remus and Tonks, pale and still and peaceful-looking, apparently asleep beneath the dark, enchanted ceiling. There are some losses that are unthinkable, that cannot be borne, and yet war has made it so that they must. Quote, the great hall seemed to fly away, become smaller, shrink, as Harry reeled backward from the doorway. He could not draw breath. It isn't fair. It isn't right. Lupin and Tonks, who after so much ostracization and shame, finally found comfort in understanding each other's love, who after never quite finding acceptance in their solitude, created a new life together, uniting in marriage, bringing a child into the world. Tonks, who set such an example for her allies and readers alike by pursuing her heart despite judgment and mockery. And Lupin, Remus John Lupin, the last marauder, now joining James and Sirius, and the traitor Pettigrew, in death. 
one of the last connections to Harry's parents and Sirius now gone. The man who taught Harry how to conjure a Patronus, which was always about more than teaching Harry mm-hmm. how that particular magic worked. Mm-hmm. It was about helping Harry uncover his inner strength and give that strength shape. About drawing forth a light inside and turning it into a shield, a beacon of hope, a guide in the dark. Lupin suffered from his lycanthropy and the prejudice that it drew forth. He suffered from the doubt that so often consumed him, and yet, in pushing through all of that to stand tall and lead, never denying that insecurities exist, but rather showing that they could be conquered, he helped Harry find his footing. He helped make the world safer for his dear friend's son, and for his own son, too. He wasn't perfect, but his imperfections showcased his humanity, and the struggles that unite us if we can prevent them from dividing us. Faced with their bodies and with this reckoning, Harry can only flee. Though he knows as well as anyone, and better than most, that there's no escape from this torment and the irrevocable finality of death. Quote, he could not bear to look at any of the other bodies to see who else had died for him. Harry turns away from the sight and he runs up the stairs, gripping the vial of Snape's memories. Quote, Lupin, Tonks, he yearned not to feel. He wished he could rip out his heart, his innards everything that was screaming inside him. He makes his way through the deserted castle accompanied only by his misery and reaches the stone gargoyle guarding the headmaster's office. It asks him for the password. Dumbledore, Harry blurts out, not as a guess, but as a plea from the book because it was he whom he yearned to see and the door to Harry's surprise opens. Harry finds an eerie change inside. The portrait frames are empty, their inhabitants having thundered about the castle from portrait frame to portrait frame to watch the battle firsthand and assist where they could. Harry retrieves the pensive and pours Snape's memories into the basin. From the book, to escape into someone else's head would be a blessed relief. Harry has absolutely no idea what revelations, both beautiful and horrifying, truly life-shaking await. But the one thing he knows is that right now he can't stand being himself. He dives in and finds himself in the bright sunlight, the high smokestack of a mill that we've seen before in Spinner's End rising in the background. Two girls are playing at a playground. A skinny boy with long hair and mismatched clothes watches them from behind some bushes. The girls, Harry quickly realizes, are Lily and Petunia Evans, his mother and her sister. The boy can only be Severus Snape. Harry moves towards him and estimates that he's nine, maybe ten, not yet Hogwarts age. From the book, there was undisguised greed in his thin face as he watched the younger of the two girls swing higher and higher than her sister. He can tell that Lily is like him, magic, different, special. As we'll soon see, he's desperate to meet someone like him, to find a friend. Lily, against Petunia's objections, launches herself off the swing at the apex of its arc. She flies through the air and lands with ease and grace. Petunia is stressed, unnerved by her sister, but also, as we'll soon see, jealous. Lily, for her part, is delighted by the strange and wondrous talents that she's uncovering in herself. Toonie, look at this. Watch what I can do. Petunia draws close, repelled, but also curious, to find Lily holding a flower in her palm, its petals opening and closing, quote, like some bizarre many-lipped oyster. Like her dismount from the swing, this, we know, is magic manifesting itself, and Snape knows it too. As Petunia shrieks for Lily to stop, Lily tosses the flower away, observing that the flower wasn't hurting Petunia, but also respecting her sister's wishes. It's not right, Petunia says. But then she asks Lily how she did it, quote, and there was definite longing in her voice. The longing that for Harry's entire life in Privet Drive remained buried beneath an intractable layer of resentment and neglect. Before Lily can answer Petunia's query, another voice does. It's obvious, isn't it? Snape could no longer contain himself, but had jumped out from behind the bushes. Petunia is startled. And Snape's pale face flushes with color as he stands there, apparently instantly regretting his decision to reveal himself. Lily, however, is intrigued. Mm -hmm. 
by young Snape's appearance and by his certainty. She asks him what's obvious, and his excitement that she is engaging with him, rather than ignoring him or fleeing, is palpable. I know what you are, he whispers to her, conspiratorially, trying to bring her into his confidence despite Petunia's presence, creating a world just for the two of them. Already, we can see the dissonance of Snape at play, the draw to and love for Lily transforming him as others repel him. What do you mean, Lily says. You're... You're a witch, whispered Snape. And Lily is aghast. The word in her muggle-centric experience, of course, has quite a different connotation than the way Snape means it. And young Snape realizes that he's making a hash of this and very quickly tries to explain. There's nothing wrong with that. My mom's one, and I'm a wizard. And as nervous as Snape clearly is, there's a winning confidence on display here, a pride in who he is, in what he is, and a real desire to share that part of his life with someone who understands it. Petunia scoffs. You're that Snape boy, she says. And then turning to Lily, she adds, they live down Spinner's End by the river. And it's clear from the way Petunia spits out these words that Snape's neighborhood isn't up to her standards. We can see already the woman who will go on to spend a lifetime craning her neck to snoop on the neighbors, gossiping and judging everything they do. She asks Snape why he's been spying on them. And Snape, not persuasively, denies the charge, adding, spitefully, wouldn't spy on you anyway. You're a muggle. Lily and Petunia, of course, don't know what the word muggle means, but there's no way that they can misunderstand Snape's tone of superiority when he dispenses the word, or even at that young age, the sense of supremacy that would lead to his bullying ways as a professor, and that in part fueled so much of the fraught relationships in his life. Petunia demands to Lily that they go, and as Snape watches them leave, quote, Harry, the only one left to observe him, recognized Snape's bitter disappointment and understood that Snape had been planning this moment for a while and that it had all gone wrong. Already here, Harry is assimilating something about Snape that he never had before. We speak so often of Harry's hero's journey, and we can appreciate it so fully because we've been there with Harry every step of the way. We need, in one chapter here in The Prince's Tale, to understand all of that about Snape, his motives, his choices. It is crucial that we and Harry got to start here with Snape at the beginning of the path he traveled with Lily, a path that will extend beyond her life all the way to his death. The memory shifts and Harry next sees Snape and Lily sitting facing each other, talking about magic in a copse of trees within sight of the river. She wanted to hear more. And what a moment this must have been for young Severus and for Lily, too. She must have wondered about these new abilities. Snape is explaining the Ministry's rules against the use of underage magic, and Lily's concerned, given that she's performed magic many times. We're all right, he tells her. We haven't got wands yet. They let you off when you're a kid and you can't help it. But once you're 11, he nodded importantly, and they start training you, then you've got to be careful. Every single exchange in The Prince's Tale crackles with insight and importance, and this is no exception. There's something about hearing Snape, who seemed to Harry like he had come into the world fully formed and angry and looming and middle-aged, talking about being a kid. Something about a man so defined by rigidity and control talking about not being able to help it. Mm -hmm. Much like, as we'll see, he can't help how he feels about Lily. Something about the pride he clearly feels at being the one to reveal this all to her. Lily's twirling his stick and imagining that it's a wand, and she still can't quite believe it's real, that magic and Hogwarts and witches and wizards exist. Petunia, she says, insists that Hogwarts is a made-up story. It's real for us, said Snape, not for her, but we'll get the letter, you and me. And here again, we see Snape's signature binary, his desire to make Lily feel safe, and his disregard for those he does not love, to bring Lily into his world, no matter if that means shutting everyone else out. From the book, even with his poorly cut hair and his odd clothes, he struck an oddly impressive figure, sprawled in front of her, brimful of confidence in his destiny. It's unbelievably jarring to think of the proud, sun-drenched boy stretched out before Harry in this memory, 
lying dead in the shrieking shack in the present day. And yet it's moving as well to see how full of hope and possibility even Snape, a man Harry and many readers have considered broken and hopeless, once was. Yes, the letter usually arrives by owl, he says, but since Lily is muggle-born, someone from the school will extend the invitation personally and tell her family about the magical world. Does it make a difference being muggle-born, she asks, and we can feel the insecurity and fear we all contend with at some point in our lives, driving her question. From the book, Snape hesitated, his black eyes eager in the greenish gloom, moved over the pale face, the dark red hair. No, he said. It doesn't make any difference. In Snape's worst memory in order, we heard him call Lily a mudblood, leading Harry to say later on that Snape didn't think much of his mother. We understand here at last that it was his worst memory because of the shame he felt for wounding her so, for giving in to the base prejudice that ruled so many of his fellow Slytherins and Death Eaters. We see the truth of his feelings here. Lily's blood doesn't matter. Her family doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is her. She asks him how things are at his house. And so it's clear that some time has passed, some snippet of this conversation preceding what we've seen. We'll get a lot, but we can't get everything. We can't get a lifetime. Snape tells her that things are fine, but a crease appears between his eyes as he speaks, and it's clear that his home life is fraud. Recall the snapshots we saw when Harry infiltrated Snape's memories after casting Protego during occulency lessons. A hook-nosed man, Snape's father, shouting at a woman, his mother, while Snape cried in the corner. Recall, too, the moniker that Snape assigned to himself, the Half-Blood Prince, choosing through the sobriquet to align himself with his mother, Eileen Prince, and not his father, the muggle Tobias Snape. Snape's appearance and demeanor in these memories speak as well to a home life of neglect. Snape's antipathy toward his father, whom he says doesn't like much of anything, and by extension his muggle ancestry, is one of the definitional forces of his life. Snape's imperious manner seems a direct response to the feelings of inferiority generated by his upbringing. Lily says his name, and he smiles at the sound of it. She asks him to tell her about Dementors, and he explains using words that we heard Petunia echo exactly to Harry in Privet Drive Mm -hmm. decades later. We thought in order that she must be quoting James Potter when she said, I heard the awful boy telling her, but we realize now she meant Snape. So much we thought we understood is coming into focus at last. Petunia has been listening in, but losing her footing. She emerges from a tree where she's been eavesdropping. Who's spying now, Snape says. Petunia replies by mocking Snape's clothes, and a branch breaks loose overhead and strikes her in the shoulder hard enough to stagger her, a branch loosed by Snape's magic. He denies it, but Lily leaves in anger. From the book, Snape looked miserable and confused. The scene shifts again to platform nine and three quarters at King's Cross Station, where Snape stands with his mother watching Lily and her family, Harry's grandparents on his mother's side. Lily is about to take the journey that will alter her life, and she's spending her last moments in the muggle world trying to calm Petunia. Fate did not bless Petunia with magic. And as is so often the case in life, her jealousy and her hurt are manifesting as bitterness and spite. Lily, again using the name Toonie, that in two syllables conveys lifelong closeness to and affection for her sister, to this point at least, is trying to assuage her that this isn't the end of their lives together or of Petunia's dreams. Quote, maybe once I'm there, no, listen, Toonie, maybe once I'm there, I'll be able to go to Professor Dumbledore and persuade him to change his mind. But love and hate, longing and disgust, are two sides of a coin. Spurned. By magic, Petunia looks at the other kids on the platform with all the buzz over the prospect of entering the magical world, of starting this new adventure, a new life. And she spits pure venom back at Lily. You think I want to be a, a freak? Again, these echo words that we have heard from Petunia before, this time back in Sorcerer's Stone, when she said to Harry and Hagrid about Lily, I was the only one who saw her for what she was, a freak. We're now seeing the jealous hurt that informed those words the first time and learning how those emotions could morph into a toxic fear of the unusual, 
that would allow Petunia to keep using those hurtful descriptions so many years later and to oppress the magic in Harry's life. Tears well up in Lily's eyes as she hears this, but Petunia continues, becoming even more venomous and cruel. Hogwarts, she says, is a school for freaks. Quote, it's good you're being separated from normal people, she says, of Lily and Snape. It's for our safety. And Lily looks to her parents for support, but they're too enraptured by the magical elements on the platform to notice the divide widening between their children. Quote, you didn't think it was such a freak school when you wrote to the headmaster and begged him to take you, Lily says. And this is a devastating response, made all the more so when Lily adds, I saw his reply. It was very kind. His, Dumbledore's, more history behind the remember my last Petunia words from Order of the Phoenix, which, in referencing the letter that Dumbledore left Petunia on the doorstep of Privet Drive with Harry as a baby, carrying information on Lily's sacrifice and the blood magic that Dumbledore intended to enact, also pointed to a deeper, longer, as yet unrevealed history of correspondence between Dumbledore and Petunia. Now we understand that. And this exchange between Petunia and Lily reveals that Petunia was not only spurned by the forces of nature and the universe that govern the magical among us, but by Dumbledore directly, who told her, kindly as Lily says, but told her nonetheless, that she could not attend Hogwarts school. Nothing excuses Petunia's cruelty toward her sister, and certainly nothing forgives the lifetime of neglect and lies that she allowed Harry to suffer at her hands. But seeing this does force us to consider the hopelessness that Petunia must have felt when she realized that an entire magical world existed and that she could not have access to it, but must watch as her sister fell into it completely. How many of us would a deprivation such as that completely break? Back on the platform, Petunia tells Lily that she shouldn't have read her private correspondence, and we can see how access to magic for one Evan's sister but not the other has spawned unkind words and violations of trust alike. Think back to Harry's thoughts when he and Ron fought in the tent. Something had broken between them. Something is broken between Lily and Petunia here. Lily admits that she and Severus, led by their curiosity over how a Hogwarts envelope could make its way into a muggle's possession, did indeed read the letter. Freak, Petunia spits once more and stomps away. The scene changes. Lily and Snape are on the Hogwarts Express. Lily has been crying. Her sister words and the break in their relationship that those words speak to cut her deeply. Snape, who's been waiting his whole life to leave his family behind, eagerly changes into his Hogwarts robes, dressing himself in his new identity and new life, and slides into the compartment with Lily and, quote, a group of rowdy boys, including James and Sirius, we will soon realize. Lily, full of emotion, says she doesn't want to talk to Snape. Petunia called Lily a freak before Lily revealed that she and Snape had read the letter, but our instinct is often to forgive those we love, even before they've earned the forgiveness. And so it's easier for Lily to blame herself and Snape rather than Petunia. He pushed her to read the letter and violate Petunia's trust. Snape doesn't really get why Lily is so fussed. So what? He asks when Lily reveals the source of Petunia's pain. So she's my sister. She's only a... Snape catches himself from completing the thought by dismissing Petunia as unworthy of Lily's care and consideration because she's a muggle. This is the crux of Snape's character. Not simply that he loved Lily. Her light and warmth made him want to be a better person. Luckily, Lily didn't hear this last truncated comment, allowing Snape to switch gears and lean into his elation. This is it. We're off to Hogwarts. A smile creeps in among Lily's tears. Snape is sure that he'll be sorted into Slytherin, and he tells Lily that he hopes she will be too. That rouses the interest of one of the boys sharing their compartment. Harry, turning his attention to him, at last realizes that the boy is his father, James. Quote, slight, black-haired like Snape, but with that indefinable air of having been well cared for, even adored, that Snape so conspicuously lacked. Such a full, instant contrast between Snape and his nemesis. That first ride on the Hogwarts Express led Harry to his best friend, Ron. They found each other there and shared their fears and their joy. 
Could something like that ever have happened for Snape and James? Right away from their descriptions, their differences define them. And right away, lamentably, ingrained prejudice gets in the way. Who wants to be in Slytherin? I think I'd leave, wouldn't you? James, Harry realizes, is talking to Sirius. James did forge an unbreakable lifelong friendship on this very first journey on the Scarlet Steam Engine, just like his son, and he forged it with Padfoot. James and Sirius will soon enough be closer than brothers. In the moment, however, it appears as though James has mucked it up. The Black family is Slytherin through and through, and Sirius says as much. James Potter, as we have seen when last Harry plumbed Snape's memories, was an arrogant young man, cruel in the way that the cool kids and the beautiful kids, the, quote, even adored kids can be. There's also something magnetic about him, something that makes people want to be near him. Mm-hmm. Blimey, I thought you seemed all right, James <laughs> says, and this makes Sirius smile. And of course, as the black sheep black, he's eager to go his own way. Maybe I'll break the tradition. Where are you heading if you've got the choice? Gryffindor, of course. Like my dad, James says. Snape scoffs, leading to an argument about the perceived differences between Slytherin and Gryffindor. If he'd rather be brawny than brainy, says Snape, sounding, we must observe, more like a Ravenclaw than anything. Where are you hoping to go, seeing as you're neither, Sirius replies. Right away, Sirius and James are loyal to each other. (sighs) And that loyalty comes just as instantly in the form of opposition to Snape. Lily is not amused. She is, just as we saw in order, repulsed by James and Sirius's bullying. We see here that her pre-existing affection for Snape informs that, too. See a snivelous, James or Sirius says. James trying to trip Snape as he and Lily leave to find a more peaceful compartment, just like Harry and Draco. The rivalry is born on that very first ride. The scene shifts again. It's time for the sorting. Even before the sorting, as we just saw, the reputations of the houses and the sectional loyalties they engender divide young wizards and witches through bias. The actual sorting is about to divide Snape and Lily more formally. Harry watches as McGonagall calls Lily to the front of the Great Hall and places the sorting hat on her head. In no time at all, the hat shouts, Gryffindor. The adult Snape was an expert at hiding his emotions. His life depended on it, after all. The prince's tale is so emotionally affecting, in part because we get to see behind Snape's mask of impassivity. Young Snape has not yet been driven by loss and despair to operate in the shadows. And so he doesn't hide his dejection over Lily's sorting. Quote, Harry heard Snape let out a tiny groan. Already, things are not going as he'd hoped or planned. Lily, returning to the benches, looks back at Snape and gives him, quote, a sad little smile. And this is such a tender and heartbreaking moment, a reminder of how early we forge real attachments in our lives and how quickly we allow our hopes to guide us. Snape and Lily were supposed to enter the magical world and share this new life together. And already, the very bones of the system that they've entered into have drawn them apart. But Snape is finally called, Harry follows Snape to the stool. And this is a small but moving and important moment. It shows how invested Harry is in Snape's story and what he's watching in this journey, in this boy whose hope is so unrecognizable from the disdain that Harry associates with the man he knew. Snape is sorted as he expected he would be into Slytherin, quote, and Severus Snape moved off to the other side of the hall, away from Lily. Snape's memories jump years ahead. The Snape and Lily that Harry next sees are both taller and older. Being in different houses hasn't thwarted their friendship, but it's clear right away that things are not blissful. They're walking across the courtyard, arguing. Snape, it seems, has been running with an unsavory crowd, the beginnings of the path that will lead him tragically into Voldemort's orbit. Thought we were supposed to be friends, Snape was saying. Best friends. Try to remember how these words jolted you when you read them for the first time, when after nearly seven full books of wondering if Snape was really full of hate or 
insisting that he wasn't. You got the shock or the affirmation that you sought when the cold, pale man who went on to make the dungeon his home issued those words of longing as a boy. Best friends. We are, Sev, but I don't like some of the people you're hanging around with. She names Avery and Mulciber, both future Death Eaters, both present at the Battle of the Department of Mysteries. What about the stuff Potter and his mates get up to, Snape counters. He can't stand that so many people adore James and that Lily, a fellow Gryffindor, might one day be among them. Lily fairly points out that James and his friends have nothing to do with who Snape decides to hang out with, but Snape can't let it go. It pains Severus to think that his bully and his mates, a boy who is everything Snape isn't, are possibly poisoning Lily against him. To Snape, the possibility that Lily's views might be shaped by Potter and his crew can only be viewed as a rejection of himself personally. His only recourse in his mind is to get Lily to see the boys as he sees them, to get her to understand. They sneak out at night. There's something weird about that Lupin. Snape already suspects that Lupin is a werewolf. Lily has heard this before, clearly. Why are you so obsessed with them anyway? Why do you care about what they're doing at night? I'm just trying to show you that they're not as wonderful as everyone seems to think they are. The intensity of his gaze made her blush. They don't use dark magic, though, Lily says. The dark has always exhibited a pull on Snape. He has no one else to blame for walking the path that led him to Voldemort. Understanding what Snape went through in his childhood, appreciating the complexity of his character, does not in any way absolve him of the responsibility for what his life became in falling in with Voldemort and the Dark Lord's minions. Still, pointing out that Snape's archenemy doesn't use dark magic is probably a great way to get Snape to double down on it, as is raising a moment that fills Snape with resentment and shame as a credit to James Potter. And you're being really ungrateful, Lily says. I heard what happened the other night. You went sneaking down the tunnel by the Whomping Willow and James Potter saved you from whatever's down there. Of course, this isn't exactly what happened. Here's Lupin and Azkaban describing the incident. Quote, Snape had seen me crossing the rounds with Madame Pomfrey one evening as she led me toward the Whomping Willow to transform. Sirius thought it would be uh, amusing to tell Snape all he had to do was prod the knot on the tree trunk with a long stick and he'd be able to get in after me. What Snape would have found, had he got in after him, of course, is a fully transformed werewolf. Sirius's little prank could easily have led to Snape being horribly maimed or even killed had James not gotten wind of it and done as Dumbledore told Harry and Stone, quote, something Snape could never forgive. What? He saved his life. Dumbledore told Harry, without sharing the full school year history that informed Snape's real allegiance, that Snape could not bear to be in James's debt, and that he worked to save Harry during his first years so that he could, quote, go back to hating your father's memory in peace. The truth, as it so often is, is more complicated. Still, Lily parroting James and Co.'s version of the story, which helpfully allied Sirius's culpability and makes James look like a hero, is Snape's worst fear. Young Snape tries to tell Lily his side, tries to explain that he's just trying to protect her from being, quote, made a fool of. He fancies you. James Potter fancies you. He blurts out, left unsaid, as if it needs to be said. <laughs> let's, be, <laughs> let's be fair. <laughs> Is that he, Snape, fancies her too and cannot bear for her to side with or pay attention to this other boy instead. I know James Potter's an arrogant toe rag, she says. I don't need you to tell me that. But Mulciper and Avery's idea of humor is just evil. Evil, Sev. Sev, like Toonie, a nickname born of true affection, even as life intervenes. Harry observes how Lily's insult of James transports Snape. Quote, his whole body had relaxed. The next memory is one that Harry has seen. To his heart, when he dove into the memory Snape stored in Dumbledore's pensive during occlumency lessons in Harry's fifth year, the confrontation near the beech tree, when James attacked Snape after their owl exams, as Sirius encouraged him and Lupin and Pettigrew looked on, when Snape called Lily, who was attempting to intervene, a mudblood. Harry stands back now, not wishing to see this play out again, not wishing to experience that pain again. But this time, the scene quickly transforms to the aftermath, to the night 
following that event, when we can see why this memory filled Snape with such shame. Not because he was humiliated, though that was part of it, surely, but because he had allowed that humiliation to lead him to wound Lily. And in so doing, showed her something about him that she could no longer ignore. I'm sorry, we see young Snape telling her. And it's clear that his error has tormented him. But equally clear that Lily is not going to let him explain this one away. I'm not interested, she says. I'm sorry. Save your breath. They're outside Gryffindor Tower. Lily in her pajamas, Snape so desperate to apologize and try to explain that he was apparently threatening to sleep outside the fat lady's portrait if Lily didn't come to see him. I never meant to call you mudblood. It just slipped out, Lily says. And the passage continues. There was no pity in Lily's voice. It's too late, she says. I've made excuses for you for years. None of my friends can understand why I even talk to you. You and your precious little Death Eater friends, you see, you don't even deny it. You can't wait to join you-know-who, can you? He opened his mouth, but closed it without speaking. This is painful. Part of true friendship is being unafraid to speak the truth to each other, even if you know it might hurt. The irony of this moment is that Snape's inability to lie to Lily and Lily's readiness to speak a harsh truth to Snape's face acts not as a salve for their relationship, but as a wedge. She knows Severus, really knows him, but that means that she can no longer rationalize what he's become. I can't pretend anymore, she tells him. You've chosen your way. I've chosen mine. The scene by the beech tree we realize wasn't just a childhood embarrassment for Snape. It was the moment when he lost Lily forever. Mm -hmm. Just as Dumbledore always told Harry, it is our choices. Lily has chosen to separate herself from something that she cannot abide, that she does not support, even if doing so means separating herself from someone she genuinely cares for. Snape chose to call Lily a mudblood. Now, he was driven to that by his shame and the bullying of others, yes, but he still chose to say it. He, like everyone else, is responsible for his actions. He's at once the product of his circumstances and his own person defined by the context of his life and also capable of and responsible for choosing to rise above that context if he really wants to. He will do that later, but he didn't hear, or rather try to too late. And when he attempts once more to tell Lily that he didn't mean it, she raises a point that cuts to the contradiction of his character. But you call everyone of my birth mud blood, Severus. Why should I be any different? Now, she is different to Snape. She's the one person who made him want to be a better man. But valuing her can't erase his other choices and his other beliefs. The power Lily had over Snape is at once a great inspiration and, for this reason, a great tragedy. Ultimately, she did change his mind, did change the course of his life. But only after he lost her did he realize what failing to renounce the choices that she hated had cost. The memory dissolves. And the next takes some time to form. When it does, years have passed. Snape, now an adult, is on a lonely hilltop at night, waiting with wand in hand, fidgeting, turning to look this way and that, his body crackling with raw panic. From the book, his fear infected Harry, too. Then in a flash of light, Albus Dumbledore appears. Don't kill me, Snape yells, terrified. And Dumbledore will do no such thing, of course. The headmaster thinks this is some sort of summit, the Dark Lord sending his minion forth with a message for his great foe. And that's not the case. I, I come with a warning. No, a request, please. Snape tells Dumbledore that after overhearing Trelawney make her prophecy to Dumbledore in the Hogshead, he told Voldemort all that he had managed to hear. 
We know from Dumbledore's confession to Harry and Order that this was only part of the prophecy, enough to help him identify a target, but not enough to show him that making a move would be to mark his victim as his equal. Much to Snape's horror we see here, Voldemort has come to believe that the prophesied child is Lily's son, Harry, and that's why he's here, betraying his master and risking his life to come see Dumbledore. He thinks it means Lily Evans. The woman Snape loves is in mortal peril, and it is his fault. Recall that when Dumbledore told Harry of the overheard prophecy in order, he spoke only of, quote, the eavesdropper, not revealing Snape's identity. He knew that Harry would not be able to forgive this information, to move beyond Snape's role in Lily's death. And as we saw when Harry learned the truth from Cherry Lawney and Half-Blood Prince, he was right. Only with full understanding of Snape's love for Lily could Harry see what the mistake had cost Snape. And that was not information that Dumbledore was prepared to give. When Harry presented what he learned to Dumbledore and Prince, Dumbledore said, quote, you have no idea the remorse Professor Snape felt when he realized how Lord Voldemort had interpreted the prophecy, Harry. I believe it to be the greatest regret of his life and the reason that he returned. And when Harry asks, quote, how can you be sure Snape's on our side, a theme that will define Harry's questioning of Dumbledore's plan, we got the following. Quote, Dumbledore did not speak for a moment. He looked as though he was trying to make up his mind about something. At last, he said, I'm sure. I trust Severus Snape completely. Trying to decide, we can now deduce whether to tell Harry about Lily and Snape's promise and the certainty that Snape's love for Lily gave Dumbledore, a certainty that Lily's death and Snape's reaction to it will cement. Quote, if she means so much to you, Dumbledore says to Snape on the hillside, surely Lord Voldemort will spare her? Could you not ask for mercy for the mother in exchange for the son? It's a test, we soon realize, and Snape fails it miserably. I have, I have asked him. You disgust me, said Dumbledore, and Harry had never heard so much contempt in his voice. Here again, the contradiction of his character is firmly in the spotlight. His love for Lily has led him to defy Voldemort, to turn on his master. It has led him haltingly into the light, and yet the light of his love for her blinds him in many respects to other aspects of humanity. Killing her husband and child to save her is not goodness. It's certainly not what Lily would want, and it's not something that Dumbledore can sanction. Severus's silence is his shame. Then looking up at Dumbledore, he pleads for the great wizard to, quote, hide them all then. Keep her, them, safe. Snape loathes James. Though he does not yet know Harry, he, of course, hates the idea of him, the literal fruit of James and Lily's love, of James's victory over Snape. But anything is worth saving Lily's life, even saving James. Dumbledore, of course, would have acted on this information regardless, would have moved to protect Lily and James as members of the Order. But he recognizes here an opportunity to swing the war effort and potentially to save Snape's soul in the process. When Harry fell into the memory of Karkaroff's testimony in Goblet of Fire, he heard Dumbledore say, quote, Severus Snape was indeed a Death Eater. However, he rejoined our side before Lord Voldemort's downfall and turned spy for us at great personal risk. He is now no more a Death Eater than I am. This is the moment in question, the choice Snape made before Voldemort had fallen to side with Dumbledore instead, to try to protect Lily no matter the cost. Dumbledore asks Snape what he will give in return for this boon. In, in return? Snape gaped at Dumbledore, and Harry expected him to protest. But after a long moment, he said, anything. Ooh, the scene shifts, and Harry finds himself in Dumbledore's office, where Snape is howling, quote, like a wounded animal, suffering etched into every fiber of his being. Quote, he looked like a man who had lived a hundred years of misery since leaving the Wild Hilltop. This is Snape, as we have never seen him. His soul laid bare. The vaunted self-control that will come to define Harry's years with him, here shredded out of existence by the agony of loss. I thought, he chokes out to Dumbledore, you were going to keep her safe. Her. Snape, in his misery, 
cannot pretend that the focus of his anguish is anything or anyone other than Lily. Snape's lack of concern for James and Harry has not escaped Dumbledore, whose contempt manifests in this comment, a shiv right to the ribs. Quote, she and James put their faith in the wrong person, Dumbledore says. Rather like you, Severus. Man, weren't you hoping that Lord Voldemort would spare her? Oh my God. Dumbledore is speaking, of course, of the broken Fidelius charm. But the statement is a larger commentary on the nature of allegiance and choice, and of course, regret. Dumbledore would know. He put his faith in the wrong person once before, in Grindelwald, as a young man. Dumbledore knows all too well the hurt that misplaced trust can foster. Ariana's death, like Lily's death for Snape, changed the course of Dumbledore's entire life. But because he knows the cost, he also knows the transformative power of getting a second chance, of turning remorse into purpose, and purpose into the fruit of a new life. Never forget the words that Dumbledore will speak to Harry in King's Cross. Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living, and above all, those who live without love. Snape and Dumbledore were able to resurrect their lives and find their own versions of redemption because they never lost their ability to love. Back in the office, Snape does not reply to Dumbledore's prodding question about hoping that Voldemort would save Lily, a question meant to challenge not only Snape's allegiance, but also his own sense of self. And so Albus continues, her boy survives. Snape looks at him. Dumbledore continues, her son lives. He has her eyes, precisely her eyes. You remember the shape and color of Lily Evans's eyes, I'm sure. Harry, just like readers, must realize now the significance of Snape's dying request. To look into Harry's eyes, Lily's eyes, one last time. Dumbledore's mention of Lily's eyes here crumbles Snape. Don't, he shouts, gone dead. He cannot bear to hear these words, words that recall the light that Lily brought into his world. But Albus pushes on, carefully working here to build this bridge between Harry and Lily, a bridge that will one day prove strong enough to support the hooves of a shining silver doe. Is this remorse, Severus? Albus asks. And there's that word again, remorse. The word at the heart of the one way, as Hermione explained earlier in this book, to repair one's soul from the damage inflicted by making a horcrux, by committing murder. The word at the heart of Harry's despair over uprooting his friends' lives and wounding Lupin with his charges. The word that Dumbledore says Grindelwald showed in his later years when he refused to betray Albus to Voldemort. The word that Harry will send out like an advanced scout in battle to Tom Riddle at the end, giving him one last chance to attempt to repair his soul before heading to the great beyond. The word, that's all to say, that separates Harry, Snape, and Dumbledore and the others who feel from Voldemort, who does not possess the capacity for change because he does not possess the ability to love and thus the ability to seek repentance. One of the great gifts of understanding that The Prince's Tale brings is showing us that Snape does, that in this way, he's more like Harry and Dumbledore than he ever was like Voldemort. Here, in the wake of Lily's death, he is a shipwreck, cracked and broken, drowning in his own despair. I wish I were dead, he tells Dumbledore, who answers with his signature wit and precision. And what use would that be to anyone? Dumbledore possesses great compassion, but he knows as well that there is a time and a place for pity and a time and a place for clarity. 
It's on him to show Snape that there is a way forward, to get Severus to understand that there's another way to fight for Lily, even though she's gone. If you loved Lily Evans, he says, if you truly loved her, then your way forward is clear. And Snape, his faculties obscured by his grief, asks what Dumbledore means. You know how and why she died, Dumbledore says. Make sure it was not in vain. Help me protect Lily's son. It will be 15 years from this moment until Dumbledore tells Snape more about his own motivations for protecting Harry. But we can see here how quickly Dumbledore's grand plan took effect, how he worked to convert Snape to protector just as he worked to lock in Lily's blood sacrifice with Petunia, always knowing that Voldemort would return, always carrying the full words of the prophecy in his mind on the path to piecing together over the years the truth of Voldemort's horcruxes that kept him tethered to life and Harry's role in that. Here, though, Snape is totally confused. The Dark Lord, he says, is gone, destroyed, beaten. He doesn't know Voldemort like Dumbledore does. The Dark Lord will return, Dumbledore tells him, and Harry Potter will be in terrible danger when he does. Now, many people, upon hearing that, would flee in terror or would work to ingratiate themselves anew in Voldemort's camp to assure their position upon his return, which they were just told was inevitable. Snape's choice in this moment is the defining decision of his life. He does not run in fear from the prospect of his master returning. He does not let his grief rule him and destroy him either, making him as useless to Lily after her death as he feels he was during the final days of her life. He agrees to turn his regret into a lifelong alignment with Dumbledore, to protect Lily's son against future horrors that exist at the moment as mere shadows in the mind. He signs over with his next words the rest of his life to a boy who will remind him of his nemesis and of all that he lost. But he does so with one condition. Very well, he says, very well. But never, never tell Dumbledore. This must be between us. Swear it. I cannot bear, especially Potter's son. I want your word. At the end of Goblet of Fire, Harry asked himself what would go on to be a recurring obsessive question for him. Quote, why, why? was Dumbledore so convinced that Snape was truly on their side. We and Harry alike are getting clarity at last in this chapter, and not only about why Dumbledore trusted Snape so fully despite such persuasive external doubt, but about why, or at least part of the reason why, he never told Harry this truth. My word, Severus, that I shall never reveal the best of you? The passage continues. Dumbledore sighed, looking down into Snape's ferocious, anguished face. If you insist. The transition into the next memory is a rapid shift, life on fast forward from the anguish of the previously unknown events that shaped Snape's life to the familiarness of the antipathy that has defined our time with Snape throughout the story. It's Harry's first year at Hogwarts, and we arrive in Meteores with Snape pelting Dumbledore with a flurry of bitter complaints about the boy who lived. Mediocre, arrogant as his father, a determined rule breaker, delighted to find himself famous, attention-seeking and impertinent, Dumbledore tells Snape that he's projecting seeing what he wants to see in the boy who, except for Lily's eyes, is the spitting image of James. The headmaster casually closes with a request for Snape to keep tabs on Quirrell, a brilliant bit of technique from J.K.R., simultaneously rooting us in a story we know so well and showing us how in command Dumbledore was, even when it seemed like chaos was unfolding on his watch, absent his awareness, and also showing us how easily Dumbledore's trust in Snape manifests now. 
This is all shocking and new for readers and for Harry. For Dumbledore and Snape, a decade of shared history have passed. And in that time, an agreement made in the throes of unrivaled despair has bloomed into genuine friendship, respect, and trust. A partnership that no one will ever really understand until Harry dives into these memories. The scene shifts to Harry's fourth year in the Yule Ball. Snape is telling Dumbledore about the Dark Mark, which, as we know from the events of Goblet of Fire, was growing more and more pronounced as Voldemort enacted his plan and gained power over the course of that year. Snape tells Dumbledore that Karkaroff intends to flee if the Mark burns, fearing retribution for the information he gave to the Ministry after his capture. Dumbledore asks Snape, who, given his role by Dumbledore's side as Harry's secret protector, has more to fear if discovered than anyone else, intends to do the same. Snape says no, employing the word that we saw in Prince, which held such terrible power over him. I am not such a coward. No agreed Dumbledore. You are a braver man by far than Igar Karkaroff. You know, I sometimes think we sort too soon. <laughs> this is at once a sanctioning of Snape by Dumbledore and J.K.R. alike, a knighting in the grace and glory of Gryffindor, and a small reminder of the tragedy of the house system. Snape doesn't need to be a Gryffindor to be good. Being a hero as a Slytherin is, in fact, a greater lesson. Yes. But these words are not ultimately about prizing Gryffindor above Slytherin. They're about reminding Snape and Harry and us that we can change, that we are defined by the choices we make, yes, but also that we get to keep making new choices. The remark hits Snape in the chink of an old wound when the sorting hat separated Lily and Severus, beginning a crack that would inevitably grow into a chasm. When Dumbledore walks away, he leaves, quote, Snape looking stricken. When the memory reforms, we're in the moments before Harry's tumultuous sixth year. And Dumbledore is the wounded one, in his case physically. And Snape is the one providing the lecture. The headmaster's hand is blackened. The effect of putting on Marvolo-Gaunt's ring, cursed by Voldemort when converted into a horcrux. The ring sits now on Dumbledore's desk, destroyed, next to the Sword of Gryffindor, which Harry and co. learned earlier in this book, Dumbledore used to destroy the horcrux in the ring. Snape is attending to Dumbledore, giving him a restorative potion, chanting incantations, doing anything that he can, anything in his abilities, to try to halt the curse's deadly power. Why, said Snape without preamble, why did you put on that ring? It carries a curse. Surely you realize that. Why even touch it? This entire scene is a fascinating sequence, with a glimpse into how special of a bond and a trust really existed between Dumbledore and Snape, the man Dumbledore sought to try to staunch the curse's deadly flow and tend to him in his most vulnerable state, and of how much Dumbledore withheld, even from mm -hmm. Snape. Never telling him that the ring was a horcrux. Never telling him about the presence and pull of the Resurrection Stone, the Deathly Hallows that led him to put it on, saying only, I was a fool. Sorely tempted. By what, Snape asks. Dumbledore, ashamed, does not answer. Since his boyhood dalliance with Grindelwald's dark ideas, Dumbledore spent his life placing obstacles between himself and power. Things become more complicated, though, when power finds him. He had no idea when he sought the ring he believed to be a horcrux that it would also prove to contain the resurrection stone of Hallow's lore. The Hallow will learn that Dumbledore coveted most as a boy. The ring, holding the Hallow, traces its lineage through the Gaunts to Cadmus Peveril, one of the three brothers from which the tale gets its name. Seeing the stone which bore the sign of the Deathly Hallows that Marvolo Gaunt and his ignorance believed only to be the Peveril coat of arms, reawakened old longings in Dumbledore. As I'll tell Harry and King's Cross, quote, the hallow I had craved most of all, though in my youth I had wanted it for very different reasons. I lost my head, Harry. He put it on, he says, forgetting that it was a horcrux, thinking only, quote, that I was about to see Ariana and my mother and my father and to tell them how very, very sorry I was. Dumbledore no longer desired to use the stone to rule 
as he had as a boy, or to escape his responsibilities. But as he'll tell Harry, he still sought it for reasons that meant he could never be its true master, as Harry will prove to be. Quote, the stone I would have used in an attempt to drag back those who are at peace, rather than to enable my self-sacrifice, as you did. Harry was already certain that Dumbledore had left the stone for him in the snitch. Now, seeing this play out, his understanding is crystallizing further. He's mere moments away from finally knowing what at the close means. Snape tells Dumbledore that it was madness to put on the ring, and that while he's done all he can to stem the curse's deadly power, there is no stopping it entirely. When Dumbledore, seemingly not at all disturbed by this news, asks how long he has, Snape tells him, maybe a year. Quote, Dumbledore smiled. The news that he had less than a year to live seemed a matter of little or no concern to him. So much of what's core to Dumbledore's character informs this response. In the short term, in the practical sense, he knows that this death sentence is also an opportunity. That as Harry and readers are about to properly understand at last, he can use his now certain demise as one more piece on the chessboard in his eternal battle against Voldemort. But existentially, Dumbledore is prepared for death. He does not fear it or think it shameful or weak as Voldemort does. To the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. Dumbledore, still calm in a way that only someone who's learned to greet death like an old friend, just as the third brother, can be, tells Snape how fortunate he is to have him in his life. Consider how far these two have traveled from that lonely hilltop and Dumbledore's declaration of disgust. Snape, who has grown to care for Dumbledore, the one man who believed in him and helped him turn his prison into purpose is furious that Dumbledore didn't summon him sooner. And it is deeply moving to see Snape dote over Dumbledore in this fashion. His eyes fall in the cracked ring. Did you think that breaking the ring would break the curse? Something like that. I was delirious, no doubt. Again, this is a deeply engrossing exchange. Did anyone ever know or fully understand Dumbledore, even here, with his closest colleague in the order, the end of his life rumbling toward him? Albus guards his secrets with care and cunning. In his estimation, it would be much too dangerous to tell Snape, who is in constant contact with the Dark Lord, about the Horcruxes. And he isn't ready to share his own history with the Hallows. He won't share it with anyone but Harry in King's Cross. He definitely changes the subject. Well, really, this makes matters much more straightforward, he says. Dumbledore clarifies for the puzzled Snape that he's referring to Lord Voldemort tasking Draco with murdering the headmaster. Quote, the Dark Lord does not expect Draco to succeed, Snape says. You know, shit. Severus explains that Draco's mission is punishment for Lucius's debacle at the Department of Mysteries, among other failures. Sending a green boy against the greatest living wizard, or second in Voldemort's mind, is nothing short of a suicide mission. Now, I should have thought, Dumbledore says, the natural successor to the job once Draco fails is yourself. Few moments in the story equal the ensuing exchange, giving us clarity at last about the plan that Dumbledore and Snape forged together regarding his death. After a beat, Snape says, that, I think, is the Dark Lord's plan. Dumbledore, ever the chess master, analyzes his foe's move and gleans the larger strategy behind it. If the Dark Lord is willing to use Snape as an assassin, then, quote, Voldemort foresees a moment in the near future when he will not need a spy at Hogwarts? And Snape says yes. Voldemort believes that the school will soon be under his control. From the book, and if it does fall into his grasp, said Dumbledore, almost, it seemed, as an aside, quote, I have your word that you will do all in your power to protect the students of Hogwarts. Snape gave a stiff nod. 
This is a promise that Snape has honored all year, as the masses believed he was working for Voldemort, and he really worked with Dumbledore's portrait and Phineas, as we'll soon see, to continue doing his part to wage Dumbledore's war. Dumbledore asks Snape to discover what Draco's plans are under the guise of giving advice and guidance to the student. Quote, a frightened teenage boy is a danger to others as well as to himself. In Prince Harry spent a tremendous amount of energy attempting to convince Dumbledore of the threats posed by Snape and Draco and whatever their secret mission might be. Dumbledore's response was always to state his steadfast trust in Snape. When Snape blasted Dumbledore from the top of the tower, Harry was sure that he'd been right, and then Dumbledore, so wise, so often, had been wrong in that one area that wound up costing him the most. And now at last, Harry, surely reeling to be seeing events from this perspective, is able to discover that Dumbledore knew all along what was coming and that his faith in Snape was earned, and the most shocking revelations are still to come. Quote, Ultimately, of course, Dumbledore continues, there is only one thing to be done if we are to save him from Lord Voldemort's wrath. And Snape, dryly, raising an eyebrow in amusement, asks Dumbledore whether that means he intends to let Draco kill him. The response solves one of the central mysteries of this story, healing in a sentence a part of Harry's heart that he thought would be forever broken. Certainly not, Dumbledore replies. You must kill me. <laughs> You remember when you read this for the first time? It was, it's honestly (laughs) wild shocking. (sighs) Severus's response drips with sarcasm, a pitch perfect bit of dialogue work from JK. Would you like me to do it now? (laughs) It's incredible. (laughs) His voice heavy with irony. Or would you like a few moments to compose an epitaph? (laughs) Dumbledore is not phased. When the time is right, he says, they'll know it. And they did, atop the tower. Dumbledore seemingly broken and cornered, telling Malfoy that his mercy still mattered. The mercy we understand now to spare Draco's soul. At last, we see the truth behind Dumbledore's plea to Snape atop the tower. Severus, please, was not a desperate cry for life, for saving. It was a reminder of the promise Snape had made to grant Dumbledore a certain kind of death. Quote, we could be sure that it will happen within a year, Dumbledore says, referring to the tax from his blackened hand. If you don't mind dying, Snape asks, why not let Draco do it? And Dumbledore, always concerned with the well-being of his students, rarely believing even the most seemingly dangerous of them, like young Tom Riddle, could be beyond hope, says he doesn't want that murder on Draco's soul. Quote, I would not have it ripped apart on my account. A gut-wrenching response ensues. And my soul, Dumbledore? Mine? This line is not as famous as some of the iconic Snape declarations still to come in this chapter, but it says as much about his growth as any of them. He is still Snape, still imperfect, still flawed, still willing here to let Draco suffer, as he once was willing to let James and Harry. But he wants to be whole. He wants to be good. He cares about the state of his soul, something that for Harry and surely many readers out there was unthinkable from the moment that he appeared to murder Dumbledore and possibly even longer. He does not want to hurt others or end lives. He wants to protect life. Dumbledore, wise to the nature of life and death in the state of humanity in a way that few others could ever hope to be, has the perfect reply ready. You alone know whether it will harm your soul to help an old man avoid pain and humiliation. Dumbledore, unlike Voldemort, understands that the world is not divided into binaries, that intention and the will of the heart matter far more than the act itself. Snape has sought to keep his redemption secret from the world, but with these words, Dumbledore reminds him that the contents of his heart are paramount and that only he can know the truth of what's inside of him and thus the state of that redemption. 
Dumbledore says he'd prefer his death come at Snape's trusted hands, quick and painless, rather than Greybacks or Bellatrixes who would surely seek to make Dumbledore suffer. He believes in the state of Snape's absolution, enough to ask this of him and to believe that he will get it. And he trusts Snape's friendship and loyalty enough to believe that Snape will grant him this request. And ultimately, Snape does. The memory melts away and reforms to show Snape and Dumbledore strolling the grounds of the castle at night. What are you doing with Potter all these evenings? You are closeted together, Snape asks. For Harry, part of the shock of these scenes must surely be the strange mirrored parallels between himself and Snape. Yes. Just as Harry was bitterly complaining to Dumbledore about access to information and trying to figure out what Snape was up to, so too— the potion master turned defense against the dark arts teacher was berating Dumbledore for insight into his special secret bond with Harry Potter. From the book, Dumbledore looked weary, much as he so often did when Harry questioned his trust in Snape. Severus snipes again about Harry's resemblance in character and appearance to James, and Dumbledore shuts this down again, endeavoring to build a bridge between these two foes, the secret guardian and his hated charge, by building a bridge between Harry and Lily. In looks, perhaps, but his deepest nature is much more like his mother's. I spend time with Harry because I have things to discuss with him. Information I must give him before it is too late. Information, repeated Snape. You trust him. You do not trust me. Man. And this could be Harry speaking. Yeah. Craving more information than he has. Feeling wounded that a man he so admires and relies on won't give back as much as he seems to take. Unlike with Harry, of whom Dumbledore so often asked for blind faith, Dumbledore, without divulging the Horcrux-centric substance of his meetings with Harry— offers at least a reason for his secrecy. Should Voldemort get wind of what Dumbledore and Harry are working on, all would be lost. Quote, I prefer not to put all my secrets in one basket, particularly not a basket that spends so much time dangling on the arm of Lord Voldemort, which I do on your orders, Snape shoots back, intimating that Dumbledore doesn't appreciate the dire risks Snape takes because Dumbledore asks him to, and Dumbledore denies this. Quote, to give Voldemort what appears to be valuable information while withholding the essentials is a job I would entrust to nobody but you. This moment provides an important insight about relationships. Dumbledore and Snape are fighting against a force that threatens the entire world, a dark and evil monster whose cruelty and lust for power is boundless. Snape does not lack for motivation, nor does he need to be reminded of the stakes of this quest. But sometimes... The most powerful way to keep someone on task to lift their spirits is simply to tell them that they're doing a great job and how appreciated they are. Isaac, you're doing a great job. You're doing we a great job, you. <laughs> It's what Snape needed to hear, even if it doesn't immediately mollify him. Yet you confide much more in a boy who is incapable of occlumency, whose magic is mediocre, Savage. and who has a direct <laughs> connection to the Dark Lord's mind. Oh, God. But Dumbledore, as ever, has an answer. Voldemort will no longer use the link he and Harry share. After the battle at the Ministry and the duel with Dumbledore, Voldemort, recall, tried to possess Harry, only to recoil in pain when he came into contact with Harry's grief over Sirius's death. Dumbledore tries to explain. Lord Voldemort's soul, maimed as it is, cannot bear close contact with a soul like Harry's, like a tongue on frozen steel, like flesh in flame. Souls? We are talking of minds, Snape says. I love that yeah. line. In the case of Harry and Lord Voldemort, Dumbledore retorts, to speak of one is to speak of the other. Dumbledore looks around to make sure no one can overhear them on the forest edge. For now, this is as close as Dumbledore dares come to uttering the truth about Harry's standing as a horcrux and the true nature of the connection between him and Voldemort, though that's about to change. Dumbledore tries to return to the topic of his prearranged death, but Snape is irate. 
Dumbledore has placed Snape in great danger, and in asking Snape to murder him is placing him in still more, asking him, no matter the state of his soul, to forsake the state of his reputation and his standing at Hogwarts and in the Order, to embed fully with Voldemort and leave the trust of the good guys behind. When the deed is done, he'll be reviled by the Order, even as he works against Voldemort from the inside against the Death Eaters. Quote, you refuse to tell me everything, yet you expect that small service of me, snarled Snape, and a real anger flared in the thin face now. You take a great deal for granted, Dumbledore. Perhaps I have changed my mind. I fucking love that. This is the exchange that Hagrid overheard between Snape and Dumbledore and revealed tantalizingly, but ultimately misleadingly, to Harry and Prince. But just as Dumbledore recognized the moments when he had to reveal more to Harry at last, working always to maintain this high-wire act of sharing just enough to appease his charge, but not enough to corrupt his plan or more charitably to terrify Harry. He sees here how close Snape is to mutiny, and he relents. Come to my office tonight, said Eleven, and you shall not complain that I have no confidence in you. The next memory takes Harry back to Dumbledore's office, and the first words we hear chill us and Harry to the core. They cut to the heart of Harry's fears, bubbling over the course of the series and boiling over in this book in particular— about what Dumbledore was keeping from him. Quote, Harry must not know, Dumbledore says. These are the words that Harry has dreaded, but sensed on some level would one day come. But what and why? Dumbledore continues. Not until the last moment. Not until it is necessary. Otherwise, how could he have the strength to do what must be done? As is so often the case with Dumbledore, clarity still comes with confusion. It's clear from the nature of his words that he's thinking of Harry's courage, that he wants to protect him from some as-yet-unknown pain. That, as he told Harry in Order of the Phoenix, he cares too much. He doesn't want to add more burdens to Harry's shoulders. And yet he knows that his time is finite. His decision to bring Snape into his confidence is intended to placate Snape, yes, but it serves another function too, to ensure that the plan goes on, even after Dumbledore cannot to set contingencies in motion so that Snape can bring Harry this awful clarity once Dumbledore is no longer around to do it. The same fierce practicality that will lead Harry to confide in Neville about the need to kill the snake guides Dumbledore here, as much as his affection for Snape, who says here, but what must he do? And there is so much fueling that question from Snape. Academic curiosity, of course, the jealousy that sparked his prior outburst, but also concern for the boy that he has tried so hard to keep alive. Dumbledore tells Snape that's between him and Harry, withholding still. He will not tell Snape that he and Harry are working to destroy Horcruxes, or that Voldemort even has them, lest the quest that he has guarded so closely for so long be jeopardized. But he is prepared to walk as close as he can to that reveal. He's given Harry almost all of the pieces of the puzzle, but he's given Snape the corners. Snape cannot see the full picture because he doesn't have the cover. He doesn't have the box with the picture. But without the information that Dumbledore just gave Snape, Harry cannot complete that grand design. Dumbledore tells Snape, as we discussed earlier in The Elder Wand, that after his death, there will come a time when Voldemort, quote, will seem to fear for the life of his snake. He does not tell Snape what that signifies. That Voldemort will know that Harry is hunting and destroying Horcruxes and that he will move to keep Nagini, whom he thinks is the final Horcrux, safe. And Snape looks, quote, astonished as Dumbledore speaks telling him that if such a moment arrives, it will be safe to tell Harry what Dumbledore tells Snape now. Dumbledore takes a deep breath and closes his eyes before sharing at last the secret that he has carried inside of him 
like his own corrupted sliver of soul. Part of this chapter's unrivaled brilliance is that it is at once a reprieve from the horror of the unfolding battle and as essential of an installment in the overall arc as any other. Quote, tell him that on the night Lord Voldemort tried to kill him when Lily cast her own life between them as a shield, the killing curse rebounded upon Lord Voldemort and a fragment of Voldemort's soul was blasted apart from the hole and latched itself onto the only living soul left in that collapsing building. Part of Lord Voldemort lives inside Harry, and it is that which gives him the power of speech with snakes and a connection with Lord Voldemort's mind that he has never understood. And while the fragment of soul unmissed by Voldemort remains attached to and protected by Harry, Lord Voldemort cannot die. And here it is at last, the words that unlock the greatest mystery of Harry's life, the greatest secret and the greatest burden, the understanding necessary to beat Voldemort, revealed to him not directly by Dumbledore in a moment of trust, but by Snape in perhaps the most fitting encapsulation of Snape's role as Harry's quiet knight. Every fear that Harry ever had about Dumbledore keeping some great truth from him, about the strange likeness that he sensed between himself and the Dark Lord that his good friend Tom pointed out to him in the Chamber of Secrets, about something being broken inside of him. True, all of it. In King's Cross, when Harry and Dumbledore shared the unencumbered truth with each other at last, we and Harry will realize that Dumbledore did care about Harry as much as he always said, that he knew Harry would sacrifice himself, but also through that sacrifice, be able to return. But that final understanding, that returning warmth, still awaits. Here it feels like diving back into the frozen lake in the Forest of Dean. Only the lake is the entire seeming lie of Harry's life. Harry has just heard that a fragment of Lord Voldemort's soul lives inside of him. In order, after learning of the prophecy, Harry thought to himself, quote, he was, he had always been a marked man. It was just he had never really understood what that meant. Now at last he does. From the book, Harry seemed to be watching the two men from one end of a long tunnel. He is observing the great truth of his life, a passenger in what increasingly feels to him like a ride of someone else's design. But it is. And that is still the key. It never has been because Harry's choices matter. And part of the mastery of Dumbledore's design is that he knows what choice Harry will make because it's a choice that so few others would. That's why Harry's special. That's why he's different. That's why he's a worthy hero capable of assuming power and shouldering this load. Snape hearing this says, so the boy, the boy must die? And though he's described as speaking calmly, he is clearly disturbed. How could he not be? Dumbledore replies, and Voldemort himself must do it, Severus. That is essential. Again, in King's Cross, full understanding will come. Dumbledore is not actually sentencing Harry to death here, as it seems he is. He is counting upon the strength of Harry's love and the force of his courage. Remember the gleam of triumph in Dumbledore's eye in Goblet of Fire when he learned that Voldemort, in his greed, had used Harry's blood to regenerate his body? Dumbledore knows that if Harry allows Voldemort to kill him, Lily's protection will save him again. That Voldemort's killing curse will rid the world of the sliver of Voldemort's soul inside of Harry, but that it will not kill Harry himself. Because, as Dumbledore will soon explain, in taking Harry's blood, Voldemort also took Lily's protection into his body, keeping her sacrifice, and thus Harry, alive while Voldemort lived. But Dumbledore could not tell Harry this. Because then, Harry would be following a blueprint, instructions, not his own heart. The sacrifice had to be pure. And because Dumbledore knew Harry, he knew that it would be. But Snape doesn't know any of this. He can't. He sees only that the mission he's devoted the last, at this point, 15 years of his life to suddenly looks like a lot. And after a long silence, he speaks. I thought all these years that we were protecting him for her, for Lily. And Dumbledore says what he must 
but not what he truly feels. Quote, we have protected him because it has been essential to teach him, to raise him, to let him try his strength. And Dumbledore's eyes are closed as he speaks, saying, if I know him, he will have arranged matters so that when he does set out to meet his death, it will truly mean the end of Voldemort. (sighs) And when Dumbledore opens his eyes, he sees Snape looking at him with horror, with the same disgust that Dumbledore once showed to Snape. Quote, you have kept him alive so that he can die at the right moment, Snape asks. And even though the love for and belief in Harry that Dumbledore feels will reveal itself to us in the end, this is a blindingly brilliant inversion from J.K. Dumbledore presented as the calculating mastermind, Snape as the one driven by his heart. Dumbledore tells Snape not to be shocked, and a gutting exchange ensues, another entry in the pantheon of legendary Snape moments. Don't be shocked, Severus, Dumbledore says. How many men and women have you watched die? Lately, he says, only those whom I could not save. And that line does not get as much attention as the iconic always, which is still to come. But it, just like the question earlier about Snape's soul, shows us just as much about Snape's true character as anything. He has changed. He has grown. His love for Lily and his commitment to avenging her death and protecting her son has been so much more than a job. It has transformed his very essence. Recall how J.K.R., through the voice of Professor Spangle on Pottermore, described a Patronus. Quote, the awakened secret self that lies dormant until needed. This is Snape's awakened secret self. Lily's doe didn't just light Harry's way to the lake. It lit Snape's way. It lit his heart. The world, as Sirius once said, is not divided into good people and death eaters. Between the black and the white, there is an ocean of gray. That shining silvery blue that Lily and her doe helped Snape find. And he tells Dumbledore here that he feels used and betrayed. Everything was supposed to be to keep Lily Potter's son safe, he says. Now you tell me you've been raising him like a pig for slaughter. But this is touching, Severus, Dumbledore replies. Have you grown to care for the boy after all? For him, Snape replies, and then he shouts, expecto patronum. And from his wand, the silver doe bursts forth. And so does understanding for Harry. Snape cast the silver doe. Snape led him to the sword. Snape led him to the truth. And Snape's Patronus, Lily's doe, bounces around Dumbledore's office and then through the window, just like Snape. Quote, Dumbledore watched her fly away. And as her silvery glow faded, he turned back to Snape and his eyes were full of tears. After all this time, always. It is, for many readers, the essence of this story in a single word. The power of love to alter one's life. The power of the heart to save us and others too. The power of our choices to define who we are and who we want to be and how we can help others on the way to whatever forever we seek. The scene shifts. How Harry has the strength to keep standing, to keep watching, is impossible to know. Snape is now headmaster and he's speaking to Dumbledore's portrait with which he's discussing the plan that we see play out at the opening of this book for Snape to give Voldemort the actual date of Harry's departure from Brewer Drive, but to confund Mundungus and thus Dumbledore's portrait hopes keep everyone alive. Dumbledore orders Snape to, quote, act your part convincingly if forced to partake in the case. I'm counting upon you to remain in Lord Voldemort's good books as long as possible or Hogwarts will be left to the mercy of the Carrows. Dumbledore's death has not led the revelations to cease. We see Snape plant the idea in Menungus's weak mind and then the aerial battle itself where Snape risks exposing his own standing as a spy by casting Sectum Sempron, another Death Eater who's about to curse Lupin. 
The curse misses and hits George instead. The moment that everyone believed to be Snape mutilating George with dark magic was really an effort to save Lupin, a marauder, whom he hated at the risk of blowing his own cover. It's extraordinary. We now see Snape in Grimmauld Place, the mystery of who had searched the premises revealed to us at last. But Snape is not looking for dirt to give to Voldemort. He's sitting in Sirius's old bedroom, weeping, the tears pouring down his face as he reads the same letter from Lily that Harry would later find. The missing second page is revealed to us at last. It says, Could ever have been friends with Gellert Grindelwald? I think her mind's going personally. Lots of love, Lily. Recall Harry's words when he found the first page of this letter. Quote, The letter was an incredible treasure. Proof that Lily Potter had lived, really lived, that her warm hand had once moved across this parchment. It's just as priceless of a treasure to Snape. Something tangible that he can hold and feel. A piece of Lily that he can carry with him, which he does, taking the page that Harry will be unable to find. Quote, this kills me. Snape took the page bearing Lily's signature and her love and tucked it inside his robes. The torn photograph that Harry found surfaces here too, with Snape throwing the portion bearing Harry and James on the floor and taking the smiling Lily with him, a microcosm of this whole masked affair. When the scene next shifts, Snape is back at Hogwarts in Dumbledore's old office, hearing from Phineas that Harry, Ron, and Hermione are in the Forest of Dean. Words that were spoken when Hermione's bag bearing Phineas's other portrait was open. Phineas reveals that he heard it from, quote, the mudblood, and Snape, not pausing, not thinking, responding instinctively with how he really feels at this point in his life, shouts, do not use that word. Another sign of growth, another reminder that people can choose to change. And Dumbledore's portrait cries out in joy about this information and reminds Snape that the sword, quote, must be taken under conditions of need and valor, and he must not know that you give it. If Voldemort should read Harry's mind and see you acting for him, Snape asks if Dumbledore's still going to refuse to tell him why Harry needs the sword. It is an astonishing reminder of what Snape is doing, what he is risking, without fully understanding why. Because it doesn't matter. He understands what he's doing it for, Lily. Just like Harry, he's letting Dumbledore and love lead him. No, I don't think so, Dumbledore's portrait tells him. He will know what to do with it. He tells Snape to be careful, and Snape tells him not to worry. I have a plan, he says. Surely thinking of Lily and her doe, now, like always. Mal, let me find the nuggets. Let me bring you them. I know I can find them, my lord. Please, let us split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallow's chapters 32 to 33. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one. In 2016, JKR tweeted an apology for killing our favorite werewolf. She wrote, quote, in the interest of total honesty, I'd also like to confess that I didn't decide to kill Lupin until I wrote Order of the Phoenix. Arthur lived, so Lupin had to die. I'm sorry. I didn't enjoy doing it. The only time my editor ever saw me cry was over the fate of Teddy. Number two. Another Lupin note for those wondering how an accomplished defense professor marauder and member of the Order fell, on Pottermore Rowling explained that Lupin, quote, was no longer in prime fighting condition when he rushed to join the fight. Months of inactivity using mostly spells of concealment and protection had blunted his dueling capabilities, and when he ran up against a dueler of Dolohov's skill, now battle-hardened after months of killing and maiming, his reactions were too slow. Ugh, tragic. Number three. When James says, who wants to be in Slytherin, I think I'd leave, wouldn't you? If that I think I'd leave, wouldn't you language sounds familiar... It should. In Sorcerer's Stone, Draco says to Harry, imagine being in Hufflepuff. I think I'd leave, wouldn't you? 
Number four, Lavender, Lav, Lav, Brown, Dead or Alive. The movies, of course, leave very little doubt. Poor Lav is shown unambiguously as werewolf food in Deathly Hallows Part 2. In the books, much less clear. Here's the passage. Two bodies fell from the balcony overhead as they reached the ground, and a gray blur that Harry took for an animal sped four-legged across the hall to sink its teeth into one of the fallen. No! shrieked Hermione, and with a deafening blast from her wand, Fenrir Greyback was thrown backward from the feebly stirring body of Lavender Brown. So at the very least, Lav Lav was either thrown or fell from a balcony, landing hard on the floor, only to be savaged by Fenrir Greyback. She's likely, at a minimum, maimed for life. Pottermore once listed her status as, quote, presumed dead. That entry was updated, however, so that now only her house, Gryffindor, is listed. Long live Lav, we think. Number five. When our friends reach the Wampy Willow, Ron laments that Crookshanks isn't there. Me too. I also lament that Crookshanks isn't there. Like he was in their third year to press the knot on the Wampy Willow and freeze its branches. And Hermione replies, Crookshanks, are you a wizard or what? If this sounds familiar, it should. It's a delightful callback to the trio's adventures beneath the school and yeah, Sorcerer's Stone. Love that When stuff. Hermione lamented the lack of wood with which to light a fire and thus free the group from the devil's snare, and Ron shouted, have you gone mad? Are you a witch or not? Listen. Bookends balance, strong foundation for a marriage here. Brought a smile to my face when she said that. Number six, the homie Phileas Flitwick head of Ravenclaw House, a man in the thick of the battle, as we see in the Elder Wand, was rumored to be a champion duelist in his youth. Incredible. Number seven, Snape's complexity, his secret motive is revealed in The Prince's Tale, was in J.K. Rowling's mind from the very beginning of the story. And in order to make sure that Alan Rickman, the actor portraying Snape, conveyed those hidden depths when playing the potions master in the films— Rowling let him in on a crucial piece of information about the character's arc. But it wasn't until 2016, after Alan Rickman had died, that she confirmed what that was. Twitter user Sarah Rose Frank asked the author, will you tell us the piece of information that you told Alan Rickman about Severus Snape, or will that forever be a secret? Smiley face. And JK replied, I told Alan what lies behind the word. Always. Imagine knowing that. That's pretty crazy. (laughs) Mal. Everything was supposed to keep Lily Potter's son safe, and it was every episode. We're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Who else could it be, Severus Snape? For all the Come reasons on. that we just— Who else is it going to be? For all the reasons <laughs> that we just laid out. We just spent two hours explaining why. Snape— A character whose complexity defies categorization, whose nuance divides numerous fans, whose choices ultimately helped determine the course of the wizarding world, and whose sacrifice defines the spirit of this series. He's an incredibly complex and tragic character. He is one of the most iconic characters in literature, and you don't have to—it doesn't matter if you like him. You don't have to like him to acknowledge his significance. The the fact that we're debating him still, Uh years later, is a testament to— what an incredible character he is. He's an unrivaled creation. Yes, unbelievable. All right, friends. We speak now, binge heads, directly to you. You have permitted Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, to die for you, rather than face us yourselves. But we hope that you had as much fun as we did today. Cheerful episode. <laughs> that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey and that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing, or trying to discuss through our tears, Deathly Hallows chapters 34 and 35. Until then, remember, after all this time, always. It does not work for me, Severus. What what do you mean? What are you talking about? You, like, killed 50 goblins.
back there. What are you talking about? Yes, but I could do that with a twig. It's not the power. It's not the same, the legendary power. What are you? Get, the, get out of here. 